Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Talk Recorded live. Welcome to the Tuesday Night's Time for Retargeting Podcast. I'm your moderator, Ella. Tonight we have another interesting guest. His name is Chris Burton. Uh, first off, if you're new to the call, please stay on and we will get you some additional support, some talk show podcast numbers, and some helpful links to websites. This is a, this is a solutions and educational-based podcast, but the views and opinions of my guests are not necessarily my own personal views and opinions. Um, basically, I'm open to many perspectives and many views on targeting. So um, as, I'm, as I stated right there, they're not necessarily my own views, but I'm always willing to kind of adjust my opinions and um, you know, I'm, I have an open mind, so I'm, I'm willing to listen to all points of view. And I want to share them with other people as well. Uh, my goal is that everyone can obtain something out of tonight, especially feeling of empowerment. If you have any suggestions, comments, questions, or especially if you're in need of additional support, please don't hesitate to email me at tiangel2016 at gmail.com. Again, that's tiangel2016 at gmail.com. Sorry if I've been a little delayed in responding. It's been a kind of a rough couple of weeks, but um, I'm going to try and get back on the ball and respond as soon as I can to people. Um, <clears throat> and if, if I don't get back to you, you can always try Terry at uh, StopGangStalkingCrimes.com. Um, he sometimes has a little extra time, although he's extremely busy as well. I just want to make sure that if someone's in need of support that we can address it right away. <clears throat> For some people, it really seem to be in crisis, and I want to make sure we can uh, get to you and help you in any way that we can. So. A little bit about Chris. Chris Burton was the founder of two Silicon, Silicon Valley IT staffing and consulting companies and had an art gallery for local Denver artists when he became a victim of America's classified Manhattan District Electromagnetic Neuroweapons Development Non-Consensual Experimentation Program. Trapped in a psychotronic research lab he could not escape from, he founded three charity fundraising companies in hopes of appealing to the humanity of the U.S. government which chose to further the covert ambitions of its intelligent agencies and continue the program. Okay, so now he's here to discuss the neuroweapon technology and talk about V2K and also the possibility and creation of mentoring candidates. And I believe this bio was written by Ramola. I just want to give her credit. Is that correct, Chris? Oh, I, I wrote that. She asked me for something. but. Um... Okay, you wrote it. Okay, just want to make sure that I give credit to who, um, yeah. who wrote it. Thank you, Chris. Um, although my computer's decided to restart right now. Okay. So anyways, Chris, I'm glad that we had the opportunity to to try this again. We did try to have the radio show um, on Whistleblower Nation, and we did not have success. It seemed like we were being impeded in every angle. So um, anyways, um, I'm glad you're here, and this is your crowd, so we can, you know, speak very frankly, and um, we're speaking to TIs, and um, hopefully some non-TIs on uh, YouTube will get to hear this as well. So I guess one of the things I'd like to do is, you know, kind of start at the beginning. Um, even like maybe how you got into IT work, a little bit about you personally so they can kind of understand who you are and your background. Sure, sure. Um, well, I'm 45 now. I was 
uh, targeted when I was uh, uh, 33. And um, out of college, I went to, I grew up in Morrison, Colorado, just outside of Denver. I went to uh, University of Colorado in Boulder and graduated with a uh, finance um, degree. Um, out of college, I moved to Seattle and began working for a company called Aerotech, uh, which um, is owned by a gentleman named Stephen Bishotti. He owns the Baltimore Ravens football team. Uh, when I joined him, they were in a hyper-growth phase. So I learned um, everything about the uh, you know, uh, uh, technical recruiting industry uh, while I was at Aerotech. And then I was recruited out of Aerotech to a uh, to a systems integration company called CompuCom, which was a lot like EDS. Um, they were based in Dallas. They're a you know, $2 billion company. Um, Aerotech now is the largest staffing agency in the United States. Um, they're called Allegis Group. So uh, when I was with them, they were about a $300 million company. So I learned how they were growing their business um, you know, by creating these branch offices, which are just really um, – uh, staffing agencies. They're just owned by Aerotech. So um, uh, after a year working at CompuCom, I was transferred to San Francisco by CompuCom to work in their Bay Area office. And I uh, uh, joined up with my first cousin. And he uh, had just left medical school. He uh, was teaching physics at Mills College. And uh, you know, I talked to him about the business model. And we said, let's start one on our own. So. I recruited some people from Aerotech in Seattle to come down and join us. And together, we built our own staffing agency in San Mateo uh, that was, um, well, in about four and a half years, grew to, grew to 11 and a half, almost 12 million in annual revenues. Uh, we had multiple opportunities to sell the company, but we decided to hold on to it. Um, and then that's when the dot-com uh, bubble burst, and, uh, and then 9-11 happened. So our growth uh, kind of flatlined, and um, I went back to uh, California. I had left the company for a couple of years, started my art gallery in Denver, went back because the company wasn't doing well, and decided to start a second company, and that was called Watermill Consulting. My person was called Dedicated Onsite Consulting, second one, Watermill. And so I knew what I was doing. Um, you know, I had a funding source to, to, you know, to pay for people uh, you know, to, to handle payroll, and uh, I was really doing well. Um, I had a lot of clients. And um, uh, when I started Watermill, I immediately got a huge account with a company called Business Objects and uh, was doing their entire ERP implementation, their financial uh, ERP implementation and some other modules, um, and uh, was having a lot of success. So uh, DOC was, grew really quickly, but my new company was growing even faster, and it was a lot more lean. So um, uh, I was doing ERP implementations for business objects in a company called Dusto Systems, which owns uh, Katia. Uh, so these are two very high-profile, you know, brand-name companies. And I was doing their ERP implementation, which is which are the types of projects that an Accenture, you know, would do. So um, I was feeling really good. Things were going really well. And then I noticed, uh, and just interrupt me, Ella, if you have any questions. Um, I noticed. Yeah. I noticed while I was living in uh, California, uh, starting up Watermill, that my uh, landlord was spying on my conversations. I noticed him outside of my door. And this was a friend of a friend whose mom had a house, you know, uh, in uh, Half Moon Bay on the golf course. So I thought it was a, 
you know, a, a nice place to live. And I moved in with a, a friend of a friend. So um, I felt comfortable there. But I noticed the landlord, you know, spying on my phone calls. And I didn't think much of it, except that he, you know, was being nosy. But uh, all of a sudden he started acting strangely. And, you know, I thought about the calls I was having. And I was talking to my business partner. Um, this was a consulting company, a gentleman who owned a consulting company who was working directly with business objects as, as uh, you know, practically at the CIO level, senior director, VP level. Um, they didn't have a CIO at the time, so he was pretty much the acting CIO. But he was a consultant. He was working through his own company, and I was working through my own company. So he and I had worked together before when he was at eBay, PayPal. My company helped do their um, integration. Uh, and, um, and so he... Uh, and, and so he and I were, were good friends, and we would laugh a lot. And, and I thought, gosh, you know, this guy's hearing our personal conversations, you know, um, and maybe I, that's why. I, I, Chris, I do have a quick question. Sorry to interrupt. You said he was acting strangely. What other indication uh, did he give you that, that made you um, think he was acting oddly or strangely, other than the eavesdropping? Yeah, well, he would start to kind of insinuates that I was doing something illegal. And I see. He, you know, I think he was shocked that I was, that I just moved out there, uh, you know, needed to rent a room from him, and then all of a sudden had this second company um, with a bunch of clients and a bunch of business when, you know, I, I was renting a room from him. He didn't, he couldn't imagine how things could just happen so quickly for me. And this is a gentleman who uh, had never worked in his life. He was 42 years old. His father was uh, a, uh, a patent attorney from Genetech who passed away, and, uh, and his mother was a retired school teacher. But he had never worked. He had always lived off of, uh, you know, money his parents would give him. So, right. you know, he didn't understand, you know, how business really worked. And I think he thought that my friendship – with Christopher was kind of fishy, you know, um, but he didn't understand the difference between a corp-to-corp relationship or and a full-time relationship. Christopher was not an employee of Business Objects, so um, in the sales world, you know, you're entitled to work with, uh, you know, to speak with your managers and laugh with them and take them to lunch and stuff, but in the consulting world, when you both have your own companies, you're allowed to work together. You're allowed to take trips together. So, he and I had a business relationship that he had approved by the uh, president of, uh, of Business Objects. So we had our own consulting agreements and everything was fine. So he was just acting like, gosh, you know, Chris, you know, it seems like you're such a big shot, you know. Uh, and, and I just, you know, I, I didn't take offense to it. I, I just, we were doing our own things. But, um, you know, this is kind of what gang stalking and gaslighting is. Um, this was the beginning of it. And at the time, I didn't understand what it was. So I just thought, why are you acting so strangely? One time he invited me into his room, and he was cleaning his shotgun. And he looked at me, and he said, you know, um, uh, you know this is for, for self-protection, you know, if anyone, uh, you know, and, and I just wanted to, to kind of let you know that. And, and I said, you know, why are you doing that? Um, and so what was really suspicious is when his friends would come over, uh, they would immediately, one time I was at the house, but my, 
had been dropped off by a friend and my car wasn't there. So I was in my room, but they didn't know it. They, he and his three friends came home and ran upstairs to his room uh, talking about me. They said, uh, oh, Chris is in here. Oh, cool. You know, let, let, let's go upstairs. And they went upstairs and they sat behind the TV set and were giggling like little girls. And so, again, I didn't know what was going on, but I, uh, uh, and then uh, another time when I was there, his friends, uh, when I, you know, mentioned, you know, hey, what are you guys doing? They just kind of looked at each other and started giggling, you know. And so it, it, was, it, was, it was something that stood out. And whenever I talked about my company, they kind of rolled their eyes, kind of like, yeah, sure, Chris, like we understand you know, about your company. So I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure it out. And then we actually got into an argument and I moved out and um, he invited me back to his house to apologize. He said, Chris, I just want to apologize to you. Um, can you, you know, would you like to come back uh, and play some pool? And I said, okay. I just wanted to make sure things were cool and I wanted to make sure he, was, he wasn't going to do anything. So he, when I walked in, that night, he was sitting, he was with a friend of his named Curtis, and they, I, I, I walked in and he said, Chris, you know, have a seat. Uh, I just want to let you know you're being recorded. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, Chris, what, tell me about your relationship with Christopher. Uh, Christopher was my client and the acting, you know, VP at, um, at Business Objects. I said, why do you want to know? He said, it sounds, you know, you have kind of a, uh, it, 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 tell me about your relationship. What were you guys laughing about so much? And I said, well, that's, not, that's none of your business. And he said, well, tell me about Claudio. And he brought up the name of a gentleman named Claudio Silvestre, who was the former CIO of Compact Computer and of Business Objects. Uh, and Christopher and I had talked, would talk a lot about him. He's kind of a flamboyant guy. Um, and these are just, we would talk about Vegas stories and these, these kinds of things. And so this was personal information, and I just said, you know, you know, uh, Michael, just know that I'm not doing anything illegal, okay? Christopher and I are not doing anything illegal. And, um, and it was, you know, and, and Christopher and I, again, and I had talked about a lot of different things and happening in Silicon Valley, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, bribery and stuff like that um, in Silicon Valley. So we've had a couple conversations about you know, other people at other companies and rumors about that kind of stuff. But I knew that. And I didn't want Michael just, you know, coming to some conclusion that, you know, I'm doing something illegal. You know, all Michael needs to know is Christopher had been a client of mine for six years. I met him when he ran uh, IT for Levi Strauss. He ran IT for Qualcomm. And uh, he's a very well-known person. So, you know, pat on my shoulder for having a relationship like that with him. So uh, I knew... And so then what Michael said is, Chris, I just wanted to let you know that, I've, that uh, I have this whole place wired. Uh, I have it all wired for sound and wired for video. So I know uh, everything that you've been talking about. And I just said, what are you talking about, Michael? I was, it was the strangest situation of my life at the time, just being stuck in this room with this guy telling me everything I've been talking about has been recorded. And I said, Michael, you know, just, just – you know, like I said before, just know I'm not doing anything illegal, but it dawned on me now what was going on because he had been videotaping me and my conversations, and then his friends and, and Michael would go to his room and watch these videotapes behind the TV. 
and they thought they had this big conspiracy because I would talk openly with Christopher, and at one point he, Michael said, you know, Chris, I have a video uh, camera in the owl in the front, on the front porch of my house, and, which is his mom's house, not his house. And I thought about it, and I said, well, I had a conversation with, um, you know, I think I thought to myself, I, was, I had a conversation with Christopher about the two of us taking a trip to Mexico after this project. So I'm, I'm just thinking to myself, oh, my God, Michael thinks that I'm paying this guy kickbacks or something, you know, that that's, you know, that's how I got this business, and he's giving me a hard time about it. So I just left. There were no kickbacks paid. We were independent companies, and, uh, you know, we could do business together if we wanted to. Um, so, uh, you know, I continued. I, 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 I was doing well, so I went back to Denver I left that night. I just left. I didn't want to start a fight or anything. I, I just left. So, um, but that always stuck in my mind. And, and so I went back to Denver where I uh, owned a, a loft uh, right by Coors Field, and I, I just rented it out so I could go back to California and start this company. And um, right. so everything was going great. I had this client, uh, two clients, had a bunch of contractors, high-level projects, uh, and was doing wonderfully. And then uh, you know, back at home in my loft, and then all of a sudden, one day, I started hearing this man and woman talking about me, and they, the, the, the man just said, so um, what do you think's going on with, uh, oh, oh, let me, let me, let me go back, because I, I put this in a certain sequence in my interview, so I want to stick to that. Um, the, when I got back to Denver, everything was fine, and then I found out that my company was being investigated. So, oh wow! Yeah, and investigated by who? Investigated by who? By business objects. Okay. Somebody had written, had had contacted a manager there anonymously, or or I found out later that it wasn't. But at the time, it wasn't anonymously. But at the time, I was told about the investigation. I heard an anonymous tip uh, made uh, was given to a manager about you and Christopher having an improper business relationship. And so I thought, oh, my gosh, that must be Michael doing this. So uh, business objects, uh, these are, you know, these, these Silicon Valley corporations. SAP bought, bought um, business objects. Business objects is a leader in business intelligence software in the world. So this is a brand-name client, and I was doing their, their, their financials implementation, their, their financial ERP implementation, you know, part of it, but, you know, had all the lead developers. So... You know, it's a very important project. So they have to investigate these things, and I'm glad they did because they go through your, um, your invoices, they go through their, you know, your time cards and their internal time card system, and they match up everything. They know your rates. They know how many uh, hours your consultants worked and what you bill for those hours. So once they completed the uh, investigation, which was handled by two different parts of the company, uh, we I was cleared and Christopher was cleared. So uh, because everything was great, I had actually lower rates than any other firm there, and all of our projects were successful. So um, that was just unbelievable to me. I just thought, oh, my gosh. And I later found out that one of my contractors had actually uh, given someone that information, but I never found out who gave, you know, if the contractor had spoken to Michael or if Michael was involved at all. I had no idea. I was never told. Um, about the details of this, this, you know, anonymous tip. But the contractor was fired. Uh, I kept the project, 
and Chris, Christopher, the manager there, uh, his consulting company kept the project too. And in fact, they brought him on full time uh, not uh, long after that um, to, to run IT. Um, so everything was great. And I had, you know, we had went through this embarrassing, you know, um, uh, investigation, but I, you know, came out of it. And, and then all of a sudden, one day, I'm sitting in my home office and I hear this man telling me, or saying to, a, to another, or out loud, uh, you know, it, it looks like Chris uh, was cleared from the, um, cleared by business office in the investigation. And, and the woman said, yeah, yeah, I guess so. So well, what do you think is going to happen next? And they just continued, like two people having a conversation about me all day long. And I didn't know what was going on. I thought it was my downstairs neighbor, but I lived in a, in a newly constructed building in downtown Denver, cement floors, and there was no way I could hear uh, someone from downstairs. You know, they'd have parties right. and I wouldn't hear anything. So how could I hear these people? And so mm-hmm. that was the beginning of the voice to skull. And so what has taken me years to kind of figure out is how to describe all of what voice to skull is, because a lot of TIs uh, are going through the same thing and are finding it difficult to explain because you want to explain everything. You want to explain everything at once and it gets jumbled together. Your brain can't handle it. So what I've, you know, uh, and and so what, what I think I can really help the TI community with is to help us kind of get on the same page when we talk about voice to skull. What is voice to skull? Um, this, you know, we, we're all aware of what this program is, you know, and, and I'll give you a quick rundown so, so you know kind of what, what I am, I'm thinking and how I describe this to people. But, you know, we know that the military is working on covert warfare. Everything's being transitioned to small teams of people, you know, Navy SEALs, um, all of these special forces teams that go in covertly and, and go and come back out. Uh, so with this, these, all of these teams require tactics, the development of new tactics that they can use. And we saw an, an, an instance of that in Cuba. You know, these are small teams using tactics. And if people don't yeah. understand how significant a new, uh, you know, newly developed and, uh, you know, set of tactics can be, you know, think about the disruption uh, in, in technology that's happening. Uh, think about all of these things that are, that are happening around us that are disruptive, that have changed industries. And it's not just, uh, you know, tech. Um, things like fighting. I mean, think about Brazilian jiu-jitsu. That disrupted fighting. It changed the way human beings fight and have fought for thousands of years. So... When you think about what special forces does, you know, they develop tactics. And when we, you know, talk about, uh, you know, the, uh, the American um, Psychological Association being connected to torture, you know, we have to understand that the APA is the largest employer of psychologists in America. And so when we talk about Mitchell and Jessen and what they were, were uh, you know, uh, you know, what they lost their case recently for about, you know, we have to look at just what was what the military and these intelligence services mean uh, when they or what they're doing when they're bringing in psychologists. They're developing tactics, t- 
tactics for harassment, tactics used by small teams to go in and harass. And so um, we have to kind of be to understand that. There's a quote, I think you, you, you guys have probably all heard it from, um, uh, you know, you know uh, these you know, books that you might have read about psychological torture or, or you know, these, this relationship between the APA and the military. But uh, there's one gentleman, um, an APA member, um, and he, uh, oh, let me re re say this again. It, it, he was an Army Surgeon General who was speaking to the National Convention, of uh, the APA's National Convention, uh, to defend the participation of psychologists uh, in interrogation uh, and in the military. And he said, you know, uh, psychology uh, uh, at, uh, uh, is an important weapon system. So when you're saying it's an important weapon system, you, you, you know that it's being developed, you know, it's being used to develop these tactics. So that's what these gang, gang stalking tactics are. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm speaking to the TI community, so I don't want to, you know, you know, take all of your time, you know, doing this. But, you know, everyone kind of knows that there are examples of this now. You know, Cuba is the biggest one, but there are examples of these covert military tactics that have kind of leaked out into the community. You know, just like the way weapon systems can leak out into the law enforcement community, so can covert uh, stalking and harassment tactics that are used by covert teams. And so there are people like John Robb who have talked about coercive gains. You know, he's an Air Force pilot, Yale graduate, uh, black ops mission commander, and he speaks openly about, you know, America kind of transitioning, uh, you know, it's, it's intelligence agencies transitioning into this kind of um, private security model where, where private companies, you know, use their own security services. And he talks about open source war and coercive games that actually talk about, you know, uh, providing monetary rewards, you know, for gang stalking activities, you know, um, tagging the target with paint, disabling the, the target's car, um, uh, causing the target to lose money. All of these things can be uh, rewarded with money. And he's, he, he's, he's talked openly about uh, apps that can reward people for this kind of, you know, targeted harassment, because that's how kind of the military works now, you know, targeted harassment campaigns, you know, covert operations. So that's the world we live in, and the electromagnetic weapons are just a part of that. But there are other examples. There's a German site called Paystalking. If you Google Paystalking, one word, you'll find a, a German site that talks about uh, a, a group that pays monetary rewards for uh, accomplishing certain stalking tasks and accumulating points. And, you know, this is the kind of stuff that's on the dark web that is starting to make its way out on, you know, into, into the, the, the public, uh, you know, Internet. And uh, certainly with Bitcoins and this stuff, you know, we know what's going on. And then with, with the Harvey Weinstein, you know, that New Yorker article um, is, is, you know, explains uh, the relationship between powerful people and these private security companies. You know, in that article, it says this, this company, Black Cube, would give Harvey Weinstein a dedicated team of expert intelligence officers that will operate in the U.S. and other necessary countries, a project manager, intelligence analyst, linguist, avatar operators specifically hired to create fake identities on social media, as well as operations experts with extensive experience in social engineering. You know, that's a term that is brand new. Social engineering, people talking about expertise in social engineering, you know, that's 
coming from the security industry. So these are these covert kind of tactics, military tactics that were uh, created by, mil by the partnership between the military and psychologists to harass people and intimidate people. And they're now being incorporated into these uh, services offered by, you know, these, these private companies. And, um, you know, these companies do things uh, like uh, claiming that, you know, they'll talk to someone and say, well, a well-placed Western intelligence source, you know, uh, told us that this individual is up to, 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 you know, to no good. And, you know, that makes it sound like this is, is an official person from the government, and it's not. You know, that's an ex-spy. That's an ex-spy for hire. So when we talk about what happened to Rose McGowan, you know, that article in The New Yorker finishes uh, with a quote from her, and it says, you know, she felt like she was being gaslighted and everyone around her, yeah. you know, and she was living in a mirrored funhouse. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I think it's important to kind of wrap our heads around, you know, what is actually going on here. And, and when we talk about who we are as TIs, you know, the TIs fit the, you know, certainly the narrative that uh, directed energy weapons are being tested. It fits, it fits the narrative that there's this giant, um, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Manhattan Project for the Mind um, Brain Initiative project happening. It fits this John Robb and Black Cube private security narrative. It fits the, the covert operations, you know, reaching into the suburbs where your neighbor now has these, these tactics, you know, that took billions of dollars to develop, you know, and he's using them against you to, to make you feel like you're crazy. And it fits the Cuban narrative. So what are we? We are, if, if everyone I'm sure is aware of the Soviet-era psycho prison, you know, the Stalin put a lot of dissenters, a lot of people from uh, his own, you know, um, from his, his, you know, his own military into these prisons and just by calling them crazy. And that's what the mm -hmm. TIs are. We're a pool of people. We're a mix of targets, of, of experimental guinea pigs, and, and folks with, with legitimate mental illnesses. And it's a pool of people into which anyone can be thrown if they're if by one of these companies or individuals using these, these covert stalking tactics. All you have to do is follow this, the medical description for delusional disorder, which I'll, I'll read for you guys, and, uh, and we're in the, the psycho prison. And what it does is, you know, and once you're in the psycho prison, we are not to be believed. And anyone, anything we say is not to be believed. So it's a perfect cover for the testing of electromagnetic weapons, you know, and, and more specifically, everything that these weapons do you know, um, they, these weapons, as we'll talk about in my story, they graduate. Voice to skull is not just voices in your head. It is a layering of different technologies, but especially remote neural monitoring technologies that can read your mind, take over your body, force you to, to speak, um, give you, you know, lucid dreams, um, uh, you know, stimulate you sexually, uh, you know, cause all sorts of problems. And, and in addition, you know, so there's verbal torture delivered through voice to skull, and there's these remote neural monitoring specific tortures that can interrupt your thoughts, can reflect thoughts, thoughts back at you. You know, it's just there's so many different tortures going on here. But what the, the pool of TIs does is it renders all of these 
um, characteristics or attributes of these electromagnetic weapons delusional. And the more we talk about them, which we have to do, uh, the more we're, those attributes, those, those symptoms, those experiences are thrown into the description of delusional disorder. And it's amazing because it just, out of, I just pull my hair out every day looking at, you know, when you break down what voice the skull victims are going through, you know, how could anyone confuse this with a mental illness? Um, you know, and, 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 and we can get into this, but, um, you know, I, I did a little researching into some of these things. Um, uh, there's a, you know, we talk about uh, a forced speech. You know, and if someone uh, overhears you, you know, or talking about forced speech, they think it's, it's multiple personalities. But, you know, if you listen to psychologists talk about multiple personalities, it's usually uh, having, stemming from childhood trauma. And the personalities are distinct, uh, and they're different from each other. And they don't even know what each other, you know, are saying or doing. And that's not what forced speech is. Forced speech is you allowing someone to just talk through your mouth like you're on a conference call. So um, if, if I may, so we could kind of, you know, kind of stick to uh, the, the, you know, my story a little bit, but also kind of talk about how to, how to really describe voice to skull. Um, you know, I, I can kind of go back to the beginning of voice to skull. And, and again, Ella, interrupt me if you have any questions at all. I'll just continue talking. Um, well, you're, yeah, you're going in a good direction, and you're sounding clear, and you're informative, so go oh, ahead. Oh, good, good. So, um, voice to skull uh, is, uh, is very, when it first happens to you, uh, you think it's your neighbors, you know, you think it's coming through the walls, but it's not. It's omnidirectional. So, uh, when, as they, and they start, when they start with this, they, uh, they can issue threats you that um, are very dangerous. What they did to me is they told me after the first week uh, uh, that, um, that uh, they would kill me if I continued working in IT with my clients. So mm. I had to immediately shut down my company. Shut down my company. That's my career. Um, and then what, they, what happened is they attacked me. I had a friend came o- came o- uh, who came over, um, uh, and he was working for me at the time. And uh, I was, you know, trying to tell him about the voices and, the, and, the, and these conversations. And, and the voices were, were just laying on, you know, just, just pounding me with insults and things. And, and they were saying, ooh, Chris, you know, we're spirits. We're in the walls, you know, just kind of sarcastically. And I said, you know, come on, you know, uh, you – you know you're not, you know, freaking spirits, you know, you, you jerk off. You know, I was kind of speaking, you know, talking back to him in a tough guy kind of way at the time. And I thought my friend could hear the voices. I said, can't you hear these guys? I know it's faint, but just try to listen very hard. And he couldn't hear them. So, you know, I talked back to them and said, you know, shut up and stop talking to me. And my friend said, Chris, I have to go. And I have to make a phone call. And he, he left and called the police, brought them back to my loft and told them that I was talking to myself. And the police said, you can come with us voluntarily or we can hogtie you. And I wasn't screaming or yelling wow. or anything. I was just talking out loud. Mm-hmm. So as soon as that happened, you know, and as soon as they took me to, to that, you know, for a checkup, you know, at the, at the hospital, um, 
my Achilles was cut. I couldn't talk about voice to skull anymore. And, you know, they had just threatened my life if I had worked in IT, and I knew what they were doing. I knew they had set me up like this. So, so at that point, I just stayed silent about voice to skull for years. And in order to try to make money, I started these charity fundraising companies, which I'll talk about later. But, um, but what I want to kind of get into are these treatments. And so, you know, voice to skull, if, you, if they just, you know, threaten you all the time, it's something that is extremely dangerous. And like with me, you know, they caused me to shut down my, my uh, IT staffing company. Um, a week after my friend took me to the hospital, my sister came over to uh, suggest a, psych a psychiatrist. Um, and she was with her dog. She, so she came to my house, and she was with her dog, and, and she was telling me, you know, you know, Chris, you should go see the psychiatrist. I said, no, Laurel, absolutely no way. These are human beings. These are human, human beings talking to me. And she said, Chris, you know, just do it for me. And I said, Laurel, there's no way. I'll never go. And voice to skull cut in and said, Chris, if you don't see the psychiatrist, your sister psychiatrist, we're going to kill her when she goes downstairs uh, and uh, gets in her car to leave, which is parked on parking level B2 uh, with her dog, Bella. That's what they said to me. And that's exactly what happened. She was right in front of me with Bella, and she was parked on parking level B. I didn't even know it. Um, so as soon as I heard that, I said, okay, Laurel, I'll go. My sister's name's Laurel. Um, so that was it. I had to go see the psychiatrist. So those are two instances of me being tagged with a mental illness that occurred in two weeks, in a, in, in a one-week time span, um, that did it, cut my Achilles without... You know, I, I wasn't able to understand what this program was about or describe the torture. There was just these voices. That's all I could say. And they do that, you know, so that all of their testing, whatever they do to you, is always going to be considered delusional or bipolar or schizophrenic. And so that right. follows you around the rest of your life. So what I did is I stayed silent about voice to skull. I knew I had to abide by their death threat. Uh, so um, I stopped working in IT, uh, and I just dealt with their torture every day while I started these online fundraising companies. I, my idea was mm -hmm. if I could work with, you know, some of Colorado's and, and, and you know, um, other nonprofits around the world, uh, I could kind of uh, present who I am to the torturers that would, you know, information at least that would, that would have to go through the chain of command would have to be communicated to the people in charge because I didn't know if it was FBI or it was a, you know, uh, or black ops or intelligence or, you know, CIA or just a, a you know, group, some, a, some band of, you know, of, uh, of terrorists, you know. So, but that was my idea. I, I thought, you know, most likely it's government technology. Um, so I did that for seven years. I never talked about voice to skull. I never talked out loud to myself, I had everyone convinced that that was just a one-time deal. Um, and, and unfortunately, that never leaves people's minds. Once they hear a story about you, you know, talking to yourself, as soon as you bring something up, you know, they, they go back to that. And that's what happened later, uh, many years down the road. So I'll continue with the story. Um, you know, these treatments for everyone, uh, you know, these are not uh, – quick statements. Now, certainly voice to skull can uh, try to imitate a mental illness. 
But, you know, a mental illness usually is kind of a running narrative. Um, they are, you know, there are more complex, you know, kind of stories. But when you read books about schizophrenia or delusional disorder, they kind of fall, uh, you know, in, into the same kind of zone. Um, a lot of supernatural experiences. There's no way you can confuse voice to skull with something supernatural. Um, if you do it, you know, for a, a period of a few hours or a couple, few days, you might be able to with voice transformation software, you know, and, 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 and probably longer than that. But when you're in voice to skull, they're talking to you constantly for, for you know, years and years, and, and they end up making mistakes. And that's how you know they're human. Um, so, you know, one of the things they do is they build up treatment. And I've talked about this in other um, interviews, but I'll kind of go over it with it, uh, go over, uh, you know, this kind of, this, what treatments are for, for, for you guys in case you haven't heard the interview. Um, but they're very complex, and they pick up from where they left off the day before. It's not a bunch of thoughts all at once. It's not statements like, go kill yourself. They're things that are aimed at making you believe, designed to make you believe that, uh, that you have hope of being released from voice to skull, only to, to dash those hopes. They're always building up a belief in you that you're going to be released from voice to skull just to dash it. So these treatments, they don't, you don't think you're talking to aliens. You don't think you're talking to a deity. Um, it's nothing like that. You are talking to people who are holding you hostage. And they just know that it's in incredibly difficult to explain this to anybody. And if you've been, you know, caught talking to yourself, it, it, it's, it's impossible. It is literally impossible to explain. But if you understand, you know, complexity of treatments, it'll help. So here's an example. The torturers might have kept you up all night the night before explaining how your life was sacrificed for America's ambitions to develop electromagnetic weapons. You know, they go on about you being in this program and their limitless budgets and how deep their ties are uh, and how significant you are, you know, and they, they make you feel like shit. They really do. Pardon my, my language. Um, but they use a lot of these kind of, you know, kubar torture techniques, um, which if, uh, if you're not familiar with them, these are uh, techniques used by the CIA uh, that they uh, were learned or, you know, kind of um, written about by authors who studied uh, psychological torture in Russia and other countries. But uh, again, this is an example of the military, you know, creating, I mean, with over years and years and years of experiments, you know, and, and, and information gathering, you know, and, and interrogations and torture, what types of psychological torture techniques actually break somebody down? And this is like monopolization of attention, cultivation of anxiety, despair, alternating punishments and rewards, demonstrating omnipotence and uh, omniscience, and then the use of scenarios, which is what these treatments are, denial of privacy, insults, threats, sensory disorientation, emotional love, emotional hate, fear revved up harsh, fear revved up mild, uh, pride and ego up, pride and ego down, futility, establish your identity, repetition approach. There are a lot of these. And uh, if you uh, are interested in more information about these, I can send them to you. But when you think about what their tortures are doing to, these, to, to victims like me every day, uh, they're using these techniques to just kind of, you know, get information from you, um, make you think you're being released only to pull it back, um, and, uh, and, and to torture you, 
And when you find out later, you know, they're, they're torturers. This stuff is torture. How do they make you want to kill yourself? You know, how, and, I, and, and we have to understand that most of us who've experienced any of this electromagnetic, uh, you know, uh, torture uh, are most likely having our minds read. They're, me, they're, they're reading how we respond to the torture. How does it elicit thoughts? You know, I think that's what they're trying to get to the, the root of. But, um, but if I go back to these treatments, um, you know, they are building you up just to break you down again. Um, and uh, so it's not a running narrative of your life, what's going on today. It's not you thinking a person sitting, you know, at a restaurant is, is talking to you uh, in your head. It's not uh, a voice just saying, you know, you're a jerk today or get your shit together. You know, it's not like that. These are long conversations. So um, they can talk and talk forever. And, um, and so I'll continue with this one description. Um, just like a powerful person or drunk person can spout nonstop for hours at a time, the voice of scholars can go on for hours about you or just about any topic. They trade off talking uh, uh, like, uh, uh, like prison guards establishing their power and shooting, you know, shooting the shit. Um, but the next day, a voice of scholar brings up something about you they like. Uh, you've been through countless treatments before, and you know they always end badly, so you take the compliment with a grain of salt, but your brain remembers it. And you're, because you're binded to these conversations, you have to just sit there and listen. So one of them brings up this vague reference to this thing you did that put you into voice to skull, and you wonder what it is. You explain to them you've never heard a fly, and you have no criminal record, and retell elements of your life story that back that up. Uh, but they continue talking, but now in a more placid tone. So now over the course of, you know, 12 hours, a couple days or so, they move from hatred to somewhat sympathetic and then say, you know, we've been maniacs, Chris. You know, we've been doing this. Uh, you know, we shouldn't be doing this to you. You don't deserve it. Another voice of scholar chimes in and says, you know, it's hard doing this. I'm not even mad at Chris. So you notice this shift in their attitude. And you start thinking that maybe they're, they're thinking more critically, you know, about the program and their involvement in the program. And then um, now their kind of arrogance has declined. And they're speaking to you kind of like buddies and saying things like, you know, this program is just a piece of shit, man. None of us wants to be here. You know, so you loosen up, and you say something funny, and they laugh with you, you know. And uh, so this kind of more reassuring tone continues. They talk about funny stories, brag about your baseball playing plays and, or baseball playing days in high school. And someone says, you know, uh, Chris, something big is happening, man. I just wanted to tell you about it. It's happening behind the scenes, and, and I think you're going to be saved. Um, they're talking really positively about you. Um, and so now you actually start feeling confident that the torture might end. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they say something like, you know, Chris, you know, we're going to help you get out of this. Uh, you know how we're going to do it? We're going to freaking bash your skull in with a sledgehammer and kill your freaking sister tonight, you stupid. So that's how treatments usually end. They're, they're, they're meticulously designed to build up hope in you over the course of days or weeks or months only to, to destroy you traumatically. And so they started doing that all the time. Um, and, and, and so when they started the voice to skull, they only did it to me in my loft and in my car for three years. And, uh, and they used mirrored conversations, which means they just talked about me to themselves. So, if, you know, if you try to describe that to somebody, they just, you know, immediately default to mental illness. But if you listen to how I'm describing these treatments, then you know, you, 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 you have a better chance of kind of describing it, you know, um, um, and not that that's going to help any of us, but at least all of us can kind of share this information. Um, you know, another, and, and so 
they did that. They voice assaulted me in my car and in my loft to make me think that my neighbors were doing it, that it was a local operation, you know, so, um, and that there was a transmitter in my car or there was a transmitter in my loft. So I spent, you know, two years, three, two and a half years, you know, uh, looking for transmitters, looking for transmitters in my car. I had no idea. So um, uh, later they started to bring in friends of mine into these treatments. You know, first they were making me think my neighbors were involved, my downstairs neighbors, Phil and Dana, Chris, they're doing this to you. They're just not telling you. But once they kind of exhaust those tortures, once you just, you know, you've been through so much of it and you talk to your neighbors and it's just like, it's not my neighbors, you know, what are you talking about? What do they do? They bring in extra characters. They start bringing in your other friends. So here's an example of a treatment of where they brought in, uh, this was a couple years later, when they brought in the governor. Um, you know, my, I lived downtown in Denver, and the, the mayor at the time, Hickenlooper, um, who's now the governor, lived a block away from me. I could throw a rock and hit his, hit his place. And so they were telling me, well, they built up this treatment to make me think that, uh, you know, friends and stuff were involved, and they signed on disclosures, and they, so you, they can't talk about it, but we're all trying to get you out of it. In order to get you out of it, we have to find out who put you in, Chris, who put you in. And uh, so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll read off this, this treatment here that I, that I wrote down having to do with, with Hickenlooper. So one time they spent months building up the character of a woman. Um, oh, sorry, let me get to, that was another one. Um, after a long-term, or another long-term treatment I experienced, had it with John Hickenlooper, um, and the Voice of Scholars, uh, this kind of played out on a week-to-week -week basis, this treatment. Uh, it wasn't the only thing they talked about. It was just layered in with about eight other ongoing treatments, you know, mostly having to do with the police or a number of my friends being involved. They're always maintaining these kind of stories. Um, but they're always right on, right, you know, they always pick up from where they left off the day before. You could have forgotten about what they're saying. You know, Chris, your lawyer friend is, uh, you know, doesn't want to talk, and, but, uh, you know, we're still working on him. And this is something elaborate about my lawyer friend being involved, and I forgot about it. I'm doing something else. And they pick up the next day, Chris, your lawyer friend, uh, we told you he spoke to your friend Jay yesterday. Well, uh, we heard that, you know, Jay's not going to testify for you, and, and you're just like, oh, my gosh, you know, and they continue with it in the same, you know, as if, a, they, you know, there's a soap opera, there's a script writer, you know, adding pages to the script every day, and, and they're just improvising the dialogue. So, again, the Voice to Skull is this super secret government program, obviously, because of the technology that uh, I'm trapped in, uh, and the many of my friends were supposedly brought in to, in to help me uh, you know, but they were, they were signed to these non-disclosure agreements, so they couldn't talk to me about it. And uh, the Voices Scholars didn't know how I was put into the program, but they, they wanted to help me. So they suspected John Hickenlooper might have put me in because one night I blasted my stereo with the windows open, which pissed them off. And so uh, I'm told that someone from the program, Voice to Skull, asked John about his involvement, and he refused to answer any questions. So a couple of weeks later, Voice to Skull tells me that John, who... Uh, was the, the mayor at the time, as I said, is being pressured to answer questions from the State Department about whether or not he put me into the program. The torturers continued talking nonstop and, and, and reminded me constantly about how serious my situation was, telling me, you know, this is a program that put terrorists in, Chris. Um, so every once in a while they would interject something uh, uh, about the John situation. Weeks and weeks 
would go by, and they'd always bring up kind of, you know, they'd be torturing me about something else, and then they'd bring up, well, John, we heard about John, uh, or, 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 you know, we heard that John is still refusing to testify, Chris, so, you know, we'll keep you involved. Um, you better figure out a way to, to, to make John testify. Of course, I wouldn't do anything. So this went on for months until one day they, they kind of acquiesced and said, you know, they said John acquiesced and said a date had been set on which he would have to answer the State Department's questions. So they built up this whole thing. It's about John refusing to answer their questions. But, you know, this is a super secret program that some of my friends might even be involved in. And they're all putting pressure on John to answer questions about Voice to Skull. Why did you put him into this Voice to Skull program? So they said that, they had, uh, that John had agreed to this inquiry where he would uh, answer questions uh, from the State Department. So the day of the inquiry came, you know, and they projected a picture of my mind of Hickenlooper sitting at a desk with a mic um, on a stage, kind of in an auditorium. He was sitting on one side of the stage, and the State Department officials were sitting behind a desk on the other side of the stage. And then they showed a few snapshots of the, of the larger audience, which had, you know, a couple hundred people in it. And they showed other snapshots, not moving pictures, just snapshots of other people I knew kind of sitting together. So I have a college friend who was in uh, uh, kind of an advisor to Ed Perlmutter. She was a lawyer, so they kind of built her up as being involved, and a few other friends, some lawyer friends. And so they had these kind of still pictures of them, real grainy. You know how these pictures are in your mind, kind of black and white. But all to kind of set up this, this, this inquiry that was taking place that day. So, you know, I'm doing other things. I'm working on my, my charity businesses and and, uh, and they would start the, the question and answer period, and they had uh, someone mimicking Hickenlooper's voice, um, which sounded kind of like him, but uh, and they, whenever they'd ask him a question about, you know, did you put Chris, in your, you know, how did you find out about voice cell technology? He would kind of dodge and weave the way Bill Clinton would, you know. And I'm just, again, listening at home. I'd take a phone call, and I'd, I'd talk to somebody else, and then I'd hang up, and then they'd continue with the inquiries, if I just missed a question or two, they would just continue as if it was, you know, it had, it had been going on the whole time. So, you know, um, almost like they're on a soundstage. So, uh, John never provided any concrete answers, and uh, uh, and you know, this treatment just continued going and going. And so, you know, year after year, these treatments become longer and more complex because they're always trying to pull you into the point where you believe them, whether they're reading your mind or they're just you know, uh, of course, we all know that Voice of Skull now is remote neural monitoring. You know, if you're hearing voices, they are reading your mind. Um, but at the time, you don't know this. But they are always trying to build up these, this, these believable scenarios, no matter how long it takes. And once you believe it, then they pull it away from you traumatically to hurt you. And so, you know, by the end of year one, they had convinced me that my neighbors were involved. By year two, they made me think my high school friends and their friends were involved. In year three, they made me believe some of these executive directors from the charities I worked with might be involved. In the fourth year, they said Hickenlooper was involved, the Denver police and the FBI put me in the program. Fifth year, they said this, this, they, they created a story about an old, a lonely and reclusive billionaire who was funding torture because he, my torture, because he wanted to give his money away to someone who had been through hell. You know, and by year six, they said my uncle and and some people in my family uh, were involved. Um, and, uh, and I have some interesting people in my family, and I'll, and I'll talk about this later, but um, one of them was uh, a woman named Vera Gallon-Devis, 
uh, and I'll, I'll talk about her now quickly so you, you guys know, but she was uh, an international law school professor, uh, a Swiss woman, uh, who was Palestine's legal advisor. She was a human rights lawyer, and she um, wrote uh, an advisory opinion for the Inter International Court of Justice uh, that uh, declared the separation wall in Israel uh, illegal under international law. So you can Google her name and read about her, but she's a very important person. My business partner and first cousin of my staffing agency married her daughter. So um, these were people who I had not contacted yet because I was protecting them. I was very worried about them. Um, and uh, so I was trying to kind of deal with this myself. And I have an uncle who's an aerospace engineer, and I just, I was, I, I, for some reason, I was just kind of trying to handle this myself so I didn't have to bring them up. But after a few years, about four or five years, about four years, uh, their names started coming up all the time because the torture was bringing them up in these treatments, you know, in, trying to say, Chris, we're talking to Vera now, and Vera's defending you, you know, and they start bringing in names of people my cousin went to high school with who he went to a private school in L.A. with some people who were well-known individuals and said they were involved, you know. They want to find out what's going on with their cousin's, you know, cousin or with their friend's cousin. So, you know, by year seven, they said the U.S. Navy and Susan Rice were helping me because my uncle was in the military. Um, in year eight, celebrities and heads of industry like Larry Ellison were being imitated. Trey Parker, who I went to college with, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, who went to elementary school with a friend of mine. You know, they're always bringing in people who you have some kind of, you know, distant connection to or something because you're liable to believe it. So this is what treatments do. They, 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 inc they expand your, you know, the spheres of influence in your life. They keep expanding them to include almost anybody. But it's never all of this stuff at once. It's never your brain thinking, oh, my gosh, all of these people are involved. No, no. It's not thinking your neighbors are involved unless you're being told your neighbors are involved. It's not thinking the guy across the street is involved unless they're telling you he's involved, you know. And so they play tricks with us that way, and they're trying to mimic delusional disorder. You know, it's very important to kind of understand what delusional disorder is and be aware of how you are kind of, and, and I'm not telling anyone how to talk about themselves, but be aware of how this program is trying to uh, mimic uh, the symptoms of delusional disorder. So if, if, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll read a couple paragraphs from this book about delusional disorder. You know, um, and that's why it's so hard for us to describe this, because the TI pool is, uh, and, you know, these, these, these tactics that they're using are designed by psychologists. So when we talk about these military tactics, how do you make someone sound crazy? How do you throw them into the pool of PIs? You do things to them that elicit these sorts of comments when they talk to somebody about their targeting. You know, uh, delusions are simply false ideas believed by the patient but not by other people in his or her culture uh, that cannot be corrected by reason. They're usually based on some kind of sensory experience that the person misinterprets. This may be as simple as brief static on the radio or a flicker of the television screen that the person interprets as a signal. Family members often wonder where the delusional ideas in the affected person came from. One simple form of a delusion is the conviction that random events going on around the person all relate in a direct way to him or her. If you are walking down the street and a man on the opposite sidewalk coughs, 
You don't think anything of it uh, and may not even consciously hear the cough. The person with schizophrenia, however, uh, or delusional disorder, not only hears the cough, but may immediately decide that it must be a signal of some kind, perhaps directed at someone else down the street to warn him of that, that that person is coming. The schizophrenia sufferer knows that this is, uh, knows that this is true with a certainty that few people experience. If you uh, are walking with such a person and try to reason with him or her past these delusions, your efforts are probably futile. Even if you cross the street in the presence in the presence of the same person, question the man about his cough, the individual will probably just decide that you are part of the plot. Reasoning with people about their delusions is like trying to bail out uh, the ocean with a bucket. If shortly after the cough incident a helicopter flies overhead, the delusion may enlarge. Obviously, the helicopter is watching the person, which further confirms the suspicions about the cough. And if in addition to these happenings, the person arrives at a bus stop just too late to catch the bus, the delusional system is confirmed yet again. Obviously, the person who coughed or the helicopter pilot called the bus driver and told him to leave. It all fits together into a logical, coherent whole. So, normal persons would experience these events and simply curse their bad luck at missing the bus. A person with schizophrenia, however, is experiencing different, th different things, so the events take on a different meaning. Um, uh, so, while the person responds, uh, I'll just continue reading this. The, the, the cough and the helicopter noise may be uh, very loud to him or her and even the sound of the bus may be perceived to be strange. While this normal person responds to, uh, correctly to these as separate and unrelated events, similar to the stimuli and events of everyday life, the person with schizophrenia puts them together in a pattern. So that's both over-acuteness over of the senses and an impaired ability to logically interpret incoming stimuli and thoughts may lie behind many of the delusions experienced by affected minds. So to, the, to them, the person who cannot put these special events together must be crazy not the other way around. There are many excellent examples of delusional thinking in literature. So it talks about Chekhov, um, a pol policeman walking slowly past the windows. That was not for nothing. Here were two men standing still and silent near the house. Why? Why were they silent? And agonizing days and nights followed by uh, Ivan Dimitrich. Uh, everyone who passed by the windows who came into the yard seemed to spy on him or was a detective. Um, the delusions become more complex and integrated. Maybe. Uh, then simply watch the person becomes convinced that he's, he's being controlled by the other people, manipulated, or even hypnotized. So that's what we're up against, uh, these sorts of descriptions. Um, delusions may be uh, types other than paranoid, grandiose delusions, quite common. I felt that I had the power to determine the weather, which responded to my inner mood, and even to control the movement of the sun in relation to other astro astronomical bodies. That's a quote from a person, from a patient. Um, so this can lead to the belief in the person that he or she is Jesus Christ, the Virgin Mary, the president, or some other exalted or important person. So um, people believe they, have, they can fly, stop bullets with their chest. Um, so a relatively common delusion is the person can control other people's minds. One young woman I saw had spent five years at a home because each time she went into the street, she believed her mind compelled other people to turn and look at her. She described the effect of, on her mind as like a magnet. They have no choice but to turn and look. Uh, another patient believed he could change people's moods by telepathic force. I eventually felt I could go into a crowded restaurant, and while just sitting there quietly, I could change everyone's mood to happiness and laughter. Another variant in the delusional belief is of, that one's thoughts are radiating out of one's head are being broadcast over radio or television. This is called thought broadcasting and is considered to be almost a certain indication of schizophrenia. So, you know, 
thought broadcasting. I think we've all heard that before. People hear that, and it's a you know certain indication of schizophrenia. You know, one woman described thought broadcasting as you know I believe, or another woman described her delusions as I believed I had a ticker tape going on in one ear and coming out the other with all my thoughts written on it. And a young man recalled, I was really upset the other night because the people on the news were saying what my thoughts were. I know this to be true because they sent me messages on what I, I, they would be doing. I hate it when they tell my thoughts to everyone who is watching. I also hate it when people can hear my thoughts and know everything about me. So, you know, um, you know the hallmark of delusional disorder is something that, that, is, that the delusion is untrue but not unreasonable. So that's what we're faced with. We have to understand that when we talk about these things, uh, when they're setting us up with helicopters, when they're setting us up with people driving up and down the street, you know, um, they are uh, setting us up for a delusional disorder and for people who, and, and, and look, I don't have any answers to this in terms of what, how the TI community communicates. I'm only, what I'd like to do is try to describe my experience versus what these delusions are. You know, thought broadcasting is the, is the belief that, you know, uh, other people are reading your mind. Other people are reading your mind. You know, that the, that the news, you know, anchors are reading your mind. And, you know, who knows what these experience? They could be, in, you know, in individual experiments with, when some of this is happening. But when I'm describing these treatments, you know, I'm describing long situations of, you know, made up of conversation where a built-up in belief is taking place. You know, believing that something ties into what you were just thinking about is, is kind of uh, a, a thought of, uh, you know, a stream of consciousness sort of thing. I think a lot of these mental illnesses kind of are based on kind of stream of conscious stuff that's going on in your head already that is just being kind of, you know, that you think other people are, are aware of, you know, uh, that an inner voice responds back to you, you know, by issuing a statement or something. Um, but what I'm describing are soap operas. Stephen King couldn't write the, well, he could write them, but, uh, you know, when, when, when each day is kind of a, a new uh, 10 pages added to the, to the novel, that's what I'm describing. That's what Voice to Skull uh, treatments are. You know, when they build up this thing that, that Hickenlooper's involved and then put on this skit, you know, with his voice, and they did this a lot to me. Um, so uh, uh, I'll kind of, uh, I'll, should I keep going? Ella, do you have any questions? No, um, I don't really have any questions yet. I'm just kind of letting you, go, you know, follow your stream of thought. I don't want to interrupt your thought process. But, yeah, so far um, it's very interesting. Okay, good. Um, so this happened to, for the first three years just in my loft and car. Then they started doing it at my friend's houses, so it coincided with these treatments that maybe my friend Jason Cross was involved because they, tort they I could hear the voices call at his house. Same thing with another friend. And then it, um, and, and at this time, I, I uh, had started these three charity fundraising companies to kind of build up my credibility, you know. Uh, there were online companies that raised money for, uh, it was an online pet store that raised money for pet-related charities and schools and other nonprofits. These companies, these, these, these 501c3s and schools could have their own online pet store. So 
you know, I kept working at, on that every day and building relationships with, you know, with these charities. Uh, American Humane, you know, uh, I'd get a picture with the, you know, people at American Humane. I'd post it thinking that the voice of colors, you know, uh, what, you know, I'm working with American Humane, you know, the, what do you, you know, why are you torturing me? You know, this has to get, you know, it has to be communicated up the, up the, the, the chain uh, of command. But they just, you know, kept torturing me. And so I started a, I was kind of recruited into a second company that was a, 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 an online, or I'm sorry, it was a, um, an education expo for uh, disadvantaged kids um, and, or, you know, uh, uh, underprivileged uh, kids and, uh, in Denver. And so that was another six months, or that was, that was eight months I worked on that. Then I started another uh, online fundraising company, like a daily deal site for the Colorado Veterinary Medical Association, a 50-50 partnership with the CVMA, which is a very well-known um, uh, organization. Uh, they, uh, the CSU, Colorado State uh, Veterinary School, uh, School of Veterinary Medicine, is the number two school in the country. So uh, Temple Grandin is a professor there, and she's part of the CVMA. Uh, they, they're kind of sister organizations. Uh, the, the school and, and the CVMA. So it was, a, it was a big deal to be a 50-50 partner with them and, and go public with this, this fundraising site. So, you know, I was very credible. I had business meetings every day, but this torture was going on constantly. So this went on until the recession hit, and I had put all my money into this. I lost everything. I had to – my loss went into foreclosure, um, I tried to get back into IT at the last minute to save my loft. I just said, screw it. I don't care about the death threats. I had an opportunity to work with Yahoo. I, I mean, I was working with Yahoo on a big deployment project, but then the, CI, the, the um, uh, CEO, Carol Barth, was fired right before our, uh, my company and another company were supposed to do this desktop deployment for their entire company, a global you know, Win7 deployment. Uh, it was amazing. The day after I had the statement of work signed, she got fired. And my company had done Carol Barth's other uh, deployment, desktop deployment. She was at Autodesk. So I lost my loss, and that's when Voice to Skull uh, started doing some really – they started introducing these remote neural monitoring technologies. Uh, they were talking to me directly at the time, you know, still building up these treatments um, and, you know, threatening me. Uh, but it's not just blah, blah, blah. It's always built up, you know. So one day – they created a treatment called the vetting sessions. I call it the vetting sessions. And it was another one of these kinds of um, setups where, you know, you're in voice to skull and, you know, it's a secret society now. And, um, and you know, there are people uh, inside who are very concerned because they brought in the, uh, you know, a relative, uh, a, you know, member of Vera Gallen Debus's extended family. And, you know, Vera, again, very well-known um, uh, in international law circles person, uh, uh, international lawyer. And so they said, Chris, we can't talk about this openly because you understand this is a, a covert technology, you know, it's classified. But Vera's involved, and we have some other people involved, too. And so, again, they know who I'm related to. And so they brought in Melissa Gilbert. Melissa Gilbert went to elementary school with my cousin, with my first cousin business partner, just random. He went to a, a, a school called Buckley Academy, and so that's where she went. And they weren't friends in high school. I mean, and this is a private school.
they knew each other, but they weren't like close friends or something. And but they brought her in, you know, because she's an important person. She said, you know, she heard that that your cousin, uh, uh, you know, that um, that her schoolmate, your cousin, you know, uh, was related to you. So she wanted to get involved. So they said, Chris, we're gonna go through your life story again, and you know, when you know, try to explain everything. Um, uh, the way you have to us over the years. And so, you know, they'd ask me these questions again. Um, Chris, tell me about the experience when you uh, rolled your car in high school. I got in an accident in high school and rolled my car. Um, tell me the experience when you did, you know, you broke your ankle. Tell me the experience when you jumped over the fence, you know, you know, uh, after some party. Or tell me the experience with your mom when you, uh, this happened. And I've lived a very normal kind of life, you know, no, no record, but, you know, high school stories, that kind of stuff, because they're always, they were kind of building it up as if, you know, we don't know uh, if to trust you. We don't know if you're, uh, you know, you have the honor, you know, that, that, that Voice to Skull uh, needs. You know, they're making you think that you, you're almost going to be accepted into their organization. So, so they built up this treatment. Melissa Gilbert was involved. You know, she would, they, they didn't imitate her very well, but they would say that, you know, she, you know Melissa's here. She wants to ask, ask some more questions. They did this for two weeks straight, and then this is when they introduced uh, force. Or, I'm sorry, um, uh, emotion uh, injections, injections of emotion, and, and how they did that was uh, they were talking about me, and one of the voices scholars would kind of back me up, said, "You know, Chris has answered that question before. Chris has answered that question a hundred times before. You know, uh, he's a good person. He didn't, you know, steal. Uh, uh, you know." Uh, from anyone, you know, you're trying to say he's, he's, you know, they're going back to a high school story. Uh, there was, they were asking me where my car stereo came from. Chris didn't steal the car stereo. He told you that a hundred times. And when he said that, this character, I call him horse, horse voice because he kind of speaks with a horse voice. He was getting angry. You know, don't talk about Chris like that. Don't, don't talk, you know, we already told you that he's not, you know, that he's not a criminal. And when he said that, I realized my lips started moving and my fists were clenched. I looked down and my fists were clenched. I could not believe his emotions were like coming through me. And so uh, in this treatment, the vetting session, uh, treatment, they brought up a test I took in high school that I admitted cheating on. And I always said, um, you know, and I was still talking back to them with my own voice at this point for all of these years. This was 2005 to 2010. I was talking back to them out loud. You know, I lived alone most of the time and uh, would just speak out loud. So uh, they were asking me about this test. Chris, we know you mentioned this test, and we suspect you cheated on it, but you don't, you don't want to answer these questions. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. I would answer them if you read my Miranda rights to me, but I won't answer them to you uh, like this. So uh, they said, okay, Chris, we understand. So, but, uh, but you're saying that you did not cheat on this test. I'm saying I'm willing to tell the truth about what happened. So this was a test I had cheated on in high school. And, uh, and they, they knew it, and I kind of made sure they knew I, they knew it, but uh, I didn't want to answer the questions. I was kind of standing up for myself, standing up for my, for my rights and my civil rights. And so I started thinking about the test. And I, in my mind, I imagined this, you know, sitting in my seat and looking at this other guy's answer sheet. And as soon as I did that, you know, they were bringing up this test, talking about it. I envisioned it. And someone, the voice of color said, that's it. We got him. We got him. 
And that's when I realized, oh, my gosh, you know, they're reading my mind. I thought I had just been talking to them with my, you know, with just as a, as a regular person speaking out loud. They could hear me somehow, you know, through a bug or something. But that's when they started reading my mind. So during this, this two-week uh, vetting session, it, it went on, and they started giving me a hard time about a Greek friend of mine. And they were saying that he was involved in Voice to Skull. He put you into this. This is some, a, a friend of mine. He was a DJ in Denver. Uh, and uh, just a nice guy uh, who I, you know, was one of, one of my friends, and, and we weren't close friends, but he was calling me, um, you know, around this time to go out once in a while. So they, they said, you know, this guy Kostas, uh, he's, you know, we hear that he's in, in the mafia, Chris. Did you know that? You know, part of the vetting sessions, part of the trial. No, no, I've never no, heard of that. I've never heard of him being involved in the mafia. And they said, well, Chris, we have a good source that's telling us that he is the one who put you into Voice to Skull. And then the Melissa Gilbert character said, we do not, you know, uh, we want to know everything you know about Kostas putting Chris into Voice to Skull. If you have any information about that, you let us know. And this went on for about four hours when they were berating Kostas about being involved. And I'm half Italian, so they were kind of building it up as, you know, Chris, are you aware? Uh, do, you, you know, do you participate in, that, in the Italian community in Denver? And do you participate, you know, what do they think about the Greek community? I'm like, you know, everybody gets along in Denver. There's nothing like that. And I, you know, there's, there's an Italian festival I might, you know, would go to once a year in Denver. That's about the extent of it. And, um, but they talked about this Kostas guy for four hours. And then two days later, I'm on Facebook, and I read that Kostas' uh, mother-in-law, who I had just met a couple weeks before, died of an aneurysm. Died of an aneurysm. And they had Never talked about Kostas like this before. They had never brought up anything about him having to do with, you know, putting me in voice to skull, any connection like that. And as soon as I heard that, I just thought, oh, my God, what is going on? And that's when I decided to pack up and move and, and write uh, uh, as much as I could about my experiences. This was 2013 when this happened. Um, uh, this was the, the, the vetting session. I lived for two years at this friend's house after losing my loft in 2010. So I moved to Cambodia and uh, read, bought all the books I could about bullying and, um, and torture uh, and read as much as I could about the United States' involvement in, in torture, you know, what this program was about. I read, you know, what I could about Voice to Skull Online, but I'm so upset that I didn't get involved with the community, that I didn't get involved with the forum. You know, I just, you know, I, 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 I was trying to kind of understand how, uh, you know, I might be involved in this project that is, you know, might involve, you know, my family members, you know, lawyers, you know, and, and they, just, I did, they just had me convinced that, that maybe, you know, I, there was a purpose. There was a reason for me, you know, being involved in this project, in, the, in this program. So I, I started writing about this story. I, I started reading, you know, just voraciously and uh, lived for a year in Cambodia, six months in Cambodia, six months in Vietnam. And uh, at the end of my stay in Cambodia, I went public um, on Facebook about my experiences. And I, told, I wrote, you know, a two-page letter on Facebook and posted it and said, I've been gang-stalked. And um, they 
threatened, or they mentioned Kostas' name over and over, and then that was two days before his mother-in-law died. And I'm just making sure everybody knows about this. And people wrote back, they just said, Chris, are you out of your mind? Are you smoking something? What are you doing in Cambodia? You know, come back. They had no idea that my life had just been, you know, one thing and then just, you know, drilled, you know, just pounded away on <laughs> until I had lost everything and I had no choice but to go public about this. And so my sister thought, oh, well, it's connected to him talking to himself. So she told all of my friends that, you know, it must be connected to Chris's, uh, you, know, uh, you know, bipolar, uh, you know, um, problem or, you know, uh, 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 illness. And uh, because that's what the psychiatrist thought it was, even though I didn't tell her I was talking to myself, you know, uh, to the voices. I thought it was a neighbor. I told her, I think it's my neighbor's talking to me. So anyway, I had that on my record. So everyone connected my claims of being assaulted with these electromagnetic weapons and the death of my friend's mother-in-law to a delusional, or, you know, to, to a bipolar at that time. So, you know, I was doing fine out there. I was really, I had a lot of energy and was, you know, kind of happy about living there. I had a girlfriend and, uh, and then my dad contacted me and said, Chris, we'd like you to come back um, to, because your mom and I are worried about you. And I said, okay, um, I'll come back. But, you know, I don't want to talk to any psychologist uh, or psychiatrist. And they said, well, Chris, we'd like you to speak to somebody. And I said, well, Dad, if you can come up, you know, if we can come up with a, uh, an objective test for schizophrenia, then I would love to speak to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. So I did some research about and found this eye test is online, you know, you, can, you guys can, can search for it. And it's an, uh, an eye movement test. And that, you know, schizophrenic might kind of have a hard time follow, uh, following uh, a line on a computer screen. So if something's tracking your eye movement, it can tell that you're having a hard time, you know, following it. And so I gave them information about it. And my dad wrote me back and said, Chris, I found a place in Denver that will give you the eye test. So he flew me back. And on the plane back, Voice to Skull said, Chris, thinks he's going, coming back to Vietnam, and I didn't know what it meant. And so I got to Denver, and I went to the hospital, this facility, you know, private, you know, uh, hospital, and I walked in with my dad, and I was feeling really confident. I was writing about this stuff. I had it off my chest, you know. I was like, bring it on, everybody. I'm talking about this openly. And so the administrator kind of brought me back through these doors that were kind of uh, held open, you know, uh, by doorstop and put me, you know, sat uh, me and my dad down in this kind of waiting room. And then she came back and said, uh, Bill, can you come with us? We just have a couple pieces of paperwork for you to fill out. And so my dad got up and left. And I, I sat there for about five minutes by myself. And then these four people with, you know, uh, you know, with the, what do you call them, the, the you know, outfits on um, uh, and rubber gloves uh, walked in and said, Chris, you're you're, you're uh, staying with us here. And I just thought, oh, my God. And I walked out into the hallway, and they closed the two big doors, and I was stuck in this place. And so I didn't know what was going on, how long they'd keep me. I didn't know what they were doing. But my Facebook post uh, motivated my parents to petition to have me, you know, uh, uh, adjudicate or, you know, uh, um, uh, I confirmed, you know, as, uh, as, as a danger to myself or others, you know, basically. Um, so that was really frustrating. Uh, it took three days for them to finally talk to me. I told them, look, I'm just an activist. 
you know, I'm, I shared a story that happened about, you know, me being uh, victimized by these weapons. The first thing the guy said to me is, Chris, Chris, you know, uh, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, uh, you know, and acts like a duck, then it's most likely a duck, isn't it? You know, talking about schizophrenia. And so I just said, you know, no, you know, I'm, I'm not. But uh, whenever they ask me if I'm hearing something, I, I would say no. And they put me on medication, on Haldol pills. But the voice of scholars would talk to me every time I went outside to, uh, uh, to hang out in the courtyard to smoke a cigarette. Everyone ends up smoking, you know, in, in, in those places. So, um, you know, met a lot of people there, and everyone was so nice to me. Um, but I didn't know how long I was going to be trapped. It turns out they kept me for 13 days. Um, and I said, look, you know, I'm not hearing voices. Uh, I'm not a threat to myself and others. And so they had to let me go. Um, so I came back to Vietnam, and, uh, and uh, I, we, my girlfriend and I broke up. She got a job in Japan, and I moved back to, to Denver, or to, to California, and I got a job with a startup company in the Bay Area as a corporate, uh, corporate recruiter. And that's when – I'm so sorry for taking so long to get to this, but, you know, that's the story, um, uh, you know, up to this point. And so this is when they started hitting me with all of these other technologies. They were torturing me nonstop at my work and, may, and keeping me up at night. And that's when they introduced forced speech. One day um, I was in my uh, room, uh, in this room I was renting in the Bay Area, uh, and uh, we were talking to Voice to Skull, and all of a sudden this, someone said, hey, Chris, this is Joe, and it was coming out of me. And, you know, I had been through so much that it wasn't really shocking. I think people who experience voice, you know, uh, forced speech aren't really shocked by it, uh, but it is scary when it first happens. And so uh, now I'm talking to them through this person who's speaking through me. And uh, they continued with this. They tortured me so hard at my work that I, I, I actually ended up having to leave my company. I got a settlement from my company. It's a whole other story I'm not allowed to talk about because I got a settlement. But uh, uh, let's just say I was warned by somebody there that something was going to happen to me. This uh, beautiful woman, uh, Soul, uh, that worked there, she was a, a, a civil rights, a human rights attorney from China who left the country because she was persecuted and she started working in this company. And so she brought me outside and said, Chris, be careful. I just want to warn you, just be careful. There's some talk, there's some people, you know, I talked to the CIO or the CFO and some other people, and there's some talk about you, so just watch your back. And I got fired a week after that. So I probably shouldn't say that out loud, but I don't care. Um, so uh, um, I was worried about my safety. That's why I'm kind of saying that. I was worried about my physical safety. So I left the company, and that's when the torture uh, really ramped up. And... Um, they were now speaking through my own voice and through Voice to Skull, and uh, now they were starting to uh, show me biorobotization. And one night, I, uh, one day, I was driving in East Palo Alto where I lived, and they told me to pull over my car. And I pulled over my car, and they said, Chris, we're going to test some waves out on you. And so I didn't know what they meant. I pulled over and, and stopped. Turn off the, the get, or turn, uh, turn off the uh, the engine, and um, you know they said here's here's okay Chris we're going to do some experiments on you here's the first wave, and all of a sudden my left hand started shaking back and forth going back and forth.
and forth, back and forth. Like if you held, if you could hold, if you held your arm straight out and your palm, you know, kind of parallel to the ground, um, my hand was going back and forth at the wrist, you know, just over and over and over. But in perfect, uh, kind of mathematically per perfect intervals, like a metronome, you know, but very fast, faster than I could do it naturally, and and in more with more control. It was just this computerized like pulse, and that's what I thought was happening. They have these waves, these pulses now that they're experimenting on me. So they did that for five minutes, and then they said, then they stopped it, and they said, Chris, now we're going to test uh, another wave on you. And now my entire left arm from the elbow to the tip of my fingers started hitting me in the chest. My thumb would whack me in the chest over and over and over and over for five minutes. And then that stopped. And then they said, Chris, here's a wave that... Uh, that your cousin Joe's working on. They were trying to convince me that my cousin Joe was involved. And uh, it's called the gas pedal wave. And all of a sudden, my right foot started extending down to the floor uh, where the gas pedal was and back up, you know, with, where, at, at, you know, kind of at the ankle, extending and flexing uh, at the ankle. And they did that about 30 times, going down, going, you know, back up, going down, going back up, while they're talking to me through my own mouth. And so I'm like, oh, my gosh. So... Then they said, Chris, now here's the final wave to, to kind of just, uh, we're, we're going to finish you off with this. I think they said something like, we're going to finish you off. And all of a sudden, my, in, my upper body, my entire torso started going back and forth, uh, forward and backward in my feet, where to the, to the extent that my chest was hitting the steering wheel, and then my back would be thrown back into the back of the seat. So back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, um, you know, just, just almost that far. You know, band, you know, front, you know, I kind of touched the steering wheel, and then other times I wouldn't quite touch it. But that's, you know, it was that much movement. And they did that to me for 20 minutes, 20 minutes. I couldn't stop it, and I was crying. I had tears coming down my face, and I didn't know what was going on. I thought they were finishing me off, and I literally picked up a cigarette because I started smoking at this time at this point, and um, lit it and was being thrust back and forth while smoking a cigarette. And I was just holding my hand out, I was seeing, still going back and forth, and I just thought, that's it, you know, if I'm dead, I'm dead. So that was just torture. Now, they stopped that, and then they continued with the treatment, and now they, would, um, talk, they were talking to me through my mouth. So I was out of work, but I lived in East Palo Alto, uh, a, a few blocks from this kind of um, uh, carniceria um, that was uh, it's near uh, the, uh, the Ikea on University Avenue and 101 um, in Palo Alto. So I would walk to this uh, carniceria. There was a Starbucks there. And I, uh, and I talked to Voice to Skull all day long, which was talking back, you know, through my mouth. So I'd put my earpiece in, and it would just look like I was talking on the phone. But if anyone ever heard me, it was me having a conversation with the voice of scholars. And so um, I would do that, and that was my routine for days and days and days. I mean, weeks, you know, probably three weeks or something I was doing that. And they would keep talking to me, and I'm, you know, I'm thinking, gosh, this is, you know, this must be, you know, you're going somewhere with it, you know. And they keep telling me you're in Silicon Valley, and, and um, you know, we just want to show you some things about the technology. So it, it, I'll, I'll kind of tell this story, but... Imagine it taking place over the course of like three weeks. That, that, that's, what, that's how I should really explain it. Um, so Starbucks in the first few days, talking.
talking to them. Then they, they told me to, you know, take a walk town university towards Palo Alto, Chris, and we'll, we'll talk to you as you go. So I start walking, and, and, uh, uh, and um, they walk me through a neighborhood, and they said, you know, see that house on the left, the blue house? Uh, that's Mark Zuckerberg's house. He bought that for a, friend, for a high school friend of his uh, who worked at Facebook. And see these three houses? These are also Facebook houses. And so they'd walk me around the neighborhood, point out these houses, and um, then at night they'd, they'd say, you know, uh, head over to uh, Palo Alto. We want to show you something. And as I was walking down the street this time, the street lamps on university were going off one by one, turning off as I would walk by them. So they did that for four street lamps went off. And I just thought, oh my gosh, what's going on? And, and so I was, this night, you know, this is, let's say a week into it, um, I was at this uh, um, kebab place in Palo Alto sitting outside uh, about 8 o'clock at night, you know, having dinner. And they said, pick up uh, that fork with your right hand. So I picked up the fork. And they said, President Obama is here, Chris. President Obama is here. And he, he wants to show you something. And I just thought, okay. And so I picked up the fork, and all of a sudden, in my right hand, my, someone starts spinning the fork using my right hand. My, my right hand, I'm spinning a pen, that's why right, that sound came. But I, um, I was sitting there, you know, no one was sitting, it was at the restaurant. Uh, I was alone, it was a small restaurant. And uh, I'm spinning this fork, and I'm left-handed. And so, you know, I can barely spin anything um, in my left hand, but here they were spinning this fork in my fingers, you know, the way you would kind of spin a pen or something in your fingers going from one finger to the other, doing that very quickly, very well. Uh, and I'm just looking at it going, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. I can't believe you guys can do this. But that's what they do. They reveal the technology in graduated stages. So you think that you know everything about it, but you don't. And at this point, I'm still talking back to them out loud. You know, I hadn't even, you know, they hadn't even introduced the hive mind telepathy yet. But now I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, it can control my, my fingers? Oh, my goodness. So, you know, they continue with the torture treatments. They, a lot of them would take place in my room in, in Palo Alto, East Palo Alto. And uh, they would start to um, uh, tell me that uh, they began, you know, uh, Probably a week, or I'm sorry, a month earlier, they had introduced a an ex-co-worker of mine who uh, I had done some business with. She worked for CompuCom Systems. And they, they told me, you know, Chris, uh, this person uh, is, really cares about you. And we brought her in because we care about you too, Chris. And we, want, we don't want you to have to go through this by yourself. And she agreed to participate. And so she's monitoring this. Uh, with your uncle. They told me that like a month earlier. And so anytime it, it, they, would, they would maintain that believability in me, you know, somewhat, you know, 80% believe, I mean, I don't know, 60% believability, I'll give them, um, by uh, saying that, uh, you know, she's laughing. Anytime I would kind of uh, say something sarcastic back to them or crack a joke or something, uh, they would they'd say, Chris, you have your friend laughing. She's laughing hysterically. And so, they, you know, I didn't really believe it, but when they brought, when I was in East Palo Alto, uh, after, you know, this, the fork incident, they started using, you know, the voice transformation software very well. 
and they started using her voice. And they were building up this kind of big reveal of the technology. Um, and that's when they introduced the hive mind telepathy and, uh, uh, and, and, and you know, the sexual stimulation and, and all of that stuff. So they would say one of them would put on a glove and, you know, here's your, your friend, uh, uh, you know, from this company I used to work for, my ex-colleague, and she wants to take care of you tonight. So we're going to leave you guys alone on Voice to Skull, and she can take care of you. And so then she would get on, hi, Chris, you know, and, and they wouldn't let her talk too much because they'd give away her personality. But it was her voice. And, um, and she'd say, okay, now just you know, sit back and relax. I'm putting my glove on. And then all of a sudden, my hand's taken over. My hand's taken over. And they move my hand wherever they want to. And so they were doing that, um, you know, every night for about two weeks during this treatment. Um, and then they started telling me that uh, some of these celebrities were involved. They said, you know, um, oh, oh, my gosh, they, Barack Obama's voice came on and said, you know, Chris, you know, you're part of something special here. You know, you're part of Voice to Skull. And, you know, uh, you know, we just are trying to tell you how much we love you. And so this went on, and they would tell me, well, Voice to Skull, Chris, you know, it's for the military, but celebrities use it too. You know, all the, the celebrities might have stalkers, and, and, you know, wouldn't it be nice to be able to, to, to freeze a stalker in their place, you know? You're in an exclusive club, Chris. All you have to do is say, you know, a code word and, and, and describe the person you want stunned, and Voice to Skull will stun that person for you. So they were trying to make me believe that I was kind of being brought into this, you know, this group of, uh, you know, this, of celebrities that, who were get granted access to Voice to Skull. They said my uncle had been brought in, my cousin had been brought in, and, you know, it's this amazing technology that only a few people have access to and that everyone who's given access like this has a kind of a controller, you know, uh, who watches them on the satellite. And if you need anything from the controller, you just ask them. And so at this point, they, uh, they told me about the, the telepathy. You know, Chris, just think now. All you have to do is think your thoughts. And I think my thoughts, and then they'd respond to it. So they started revealing the hive mind technology. They started putting on skits. They started, uh, they pretended that uh, Kristen Wiig and Phil Armisen from Saturday Night Live were involved. And they had this rhyme, like, Chris has been voiced to skull. It, uh, he, you know, he has been so tortured, probably the most tortured person in the world. How long has he been tortured? Uh, uh, seven years, you know, nonstop torture. I think at the time it was ten years, nonstop torture. And they had this, so Chris goes back to voice the skull. Or, or Chris, they were telling my life story in this one kind of skit they were doing that was kind of like a Kristen Wiig, Phil Armisen, you know, Saturday Night Live performance. And they were retelling my whole story, you know. So Chris had to sell his loss and uh, lost his cat. You know, oh, poor Cato. What happened to Cato? And so, you know, they were telling my life story and this kind of thing. And then they broke out into song with, with lines about voice to skull. You know, this is what voice to skull is. Technology you can't not, you know, resist. Or, you know, I, I'm doing a bad job remembering it. I wish I had written it down. But it had music. And it was like a Broadway show. It was done so well, as well as any Saturday Night Live sketch, you know. And so that had me believing that, you know, they have some pretty, you know, um, you know uh, let's just say um, capable, you know, impressive kind of people working for them to do these imitations so well. 
but I didn't really believe what was happening. But, uh, you know, they continued with this for two weeks, and then, and then they built this up that uh, all of the, the you know, they'd revealed the hive mind telepathy. They had shown me what this kind of, what hive minding what looked like if Facebook had the technology, different chat rooms, some you could go in and uh, do the masturbation thing with another person, but it's not really cheating because you're doing it to yourself. So that's why a lot of celebrities do it in Silicon Valley types. They pretended Marissa Meyer was there. They pretended Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Elon Musk was there. Um, and so uh, you have these different chat rooms. This is a chat room that's kind of sensual. Everyone who's in this chat room, you know, speaks kind of like this. You know, they're 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 really interested in in, you know, kind of, kind of like the way you might talk if you're being you know, in, in an S&M session or something, you know. And here's another chat room. And this one, they speak really quickly. Uh, and this one's more about sharing business. And people are talking quickly. And, and so they're giving me an impression of, of kind of what different chat rooms might be like. And with Voice to Skull, you know, this group had created their own kind of lingo. Um, if something was funny, if someone said something that was funny, they would continue using that line. So instead of saying small, they would use itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini. So anytime someone would talk and, the, and, and you know, minuscule or small or, you know, uh, if that word needed to be used, you know, came up in conversation, they would say itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini. And you'd have, you know, you have to wait for them to say the whole thing. And so... They would continue with this, you know, uh, myself and others. Uh, Trey Parker was imitated so well. Uh, they had his personality down perfectly. And these are imp improvised conversations over the course of hours. And the stuff he was saying was just hilarious. So I was kind of beginning to think that, gosh, maybe they're right. Maybe there is something like this going on. And, uh, you know, um, and so they built up the believability, the believability in me over the course of two weeks. And then finally, they said, um, Chris, now we have to tell you, this is Obama speaking, uh, why you're really here, and you're not going to like it, Chris. And, um, and, and they had already done the hive mind. And, you know, uh, let me just say something quickly about the hive mind. You could freestyle something with hive mind, you know, with this group. So they would just continue. They could talk and, uh, amongst themselves and repeat uh, or rhyme the last word of their sentence. With the rhyme, with the words that, that you know was used before, with, with uh, you know whatever the the rhyme, the ongoing rhyming word you know was, so they could speak for an hour and with every sentence, maybe not an hour, but you know for you know 10, 15 minutes amongst themselves, always rhyming with the last word, and because you can sense what they're saying, um, it's kind of like a layering effect. Imagine hearing a voice, but maybe two or three voices where one and they're you're coming up to a word. You know, Chris went to the park, and at the park he saw a, and you're hearing maybe three words layered together with one coming through a little bit, you know, um, more clear than the other. And that's what the hive mind is. So somehow with the group participating, if two of them are thinking, you know, uh, Chris went to the park and saw a dog, you know, that word I think is weighted more than the others because two people were thinking of it at the same time. So it comes through a little bit more clearly. Um, but they only do it with, you know, two or three people because it gets clouded. So I don't know how the technology works, but it's not that, you know, it's incredible. But at the time when they were showing this to me, it was just kind of layered, 
you know, just kind of layered with one coming through more than the other. But there's always a word. If you're talking and you wanted to come up with a, with a, a word that rhymed with boots, you know, Chris went on, went to, on the hike and put on his boots and then he came home and, and uh, was in cahoots and, you know, what, what, but theirs were better than those. But um, they would always come up with another word. And if the person was kind of stuck, the hive would give it to them. So anyway, all of that was described for me. Then they said, so Chris, um, we have the bad news for you. You were chipped in your loft back in 2005, and uh, the, the, the chip has a battery on it. And the battery, unfortunately, in order for this to work, it, uh, uh, it was implanted deep into your, um, into your, uh, what, your brain stem. And uh, Chris, you've been a, a non-consensual you know, victim, uh, you know, but you're doing it for the United States of America, and the United States of America loves you for it. And um, we just want to tell you that everyone's here, your family's here, um, all of these you know, celebrities and, and, and friends uh, who consider you one of their friends, Chris, consider you one of their best friends. You know, you know, they did it better than that. They made it you know, sound like you know, we, we all came together to, to say thank you for doing this for your country, Chris. And I'm just thinking, what is going on? And they said, Chris, the battery on your, on your chip that's in your brain has a 10-year lifespan, and it's just about to run out. And they, then they hit me with what I call a P wave. It's a pressure wave, and it makes you think your entire body is underwater like 1,000 feet. That's the kind of pressure it, that, that it makes you feel is, is happening. It, they can do it to your head. They can do it to your entire body. And so they were using this P wave. And, you know, this P wave can be increased from, like, a 1 to a 10. So they started at a 1, and I felt this thing in my chest, this pressure. And then they, you know, continued going, and, and they're talking to me, Chris, so we're just letting you know that, uh, uh, you know, you are, uh, you know, you are a true American. Uh, everybody loves you. We're going to let this uh, battery run out. We've timed this so that, uh, we can say goodbye to you exactly when the battery runs out. And so we're just going to stick with you, Chris, as time runs out. And they're increasing the P wave. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Are you joking? And, but they increased the P wave. So we're just going to let it keep going, Chris. We're just going to let it keep going. We love you, Chris. We love you, Chris. And the other voices, you know, we love you, Chris. We love you, Chris. And, it, and the P wave kept increasing to like a six or a seven, and then all of a sudden my organs start gurgling. And a lot of CIs, you know, reported this. The, the, you know, you, they can actually make, you know, these air pockets in your body form. I don't know if it's cavitation or what, but it sounds like your stomach is grumbling, but only it's louder, and it happens all over your chest. So they were making my organs gurgle now. And that was the first time they had done that. So now the P waves are like a seven or an eight. The, the organs are gurgling. And then, you know, I'm feeling my pulse, and it feels like my pulse is slowing down. And so they're, and they said, Chris, we're almost there. When your pulse reaches, you know, or goes below, um, you know, a certain number of beats per minute, uh, you're, officially, you're officially dead, you know. Um, we just want to say we love you, Chris. And at that point, I'm like, what? Why did you do this? Why, why, didn't you, why would you do something like this to me? If I'm going to die, let me live on the beach or something for a while. Why would you do this to me? So they said, Chris, there's nothing we can do. This is how we thought, you know, this, this is what we thought would be best for you, so we could all love you. We could all stay 
goodbye to you in our own special way and, and give you a send-off because, you know, it's always about them. You know, it's like we, uh, you know, this is what made us feel. You know, this is what we felt like doing. This is what makes us feel good about doing this. That's what I was thinking. You know, how could you do this? It's just, you're doing it for yourself, you know? And they said, your dad's here. And they kind of imitated him a little bit. He's too broken up to speak. And I'm just like, so I sat there, I crossed my arms, and I sat there in bed while the P wave continued. And I'm just, you know, sitting there like, I don't know if this is real or not. <laughs> and so the, um, finally, when I was supposed to be dead, you know, uh, this is about 10 minutes later, and I still wasn't dead yet. I said, you know, I'm not dead yet, voice this call. And I said something that was funny, and they started laughing. And then that was the end of that treatment. So... Voice to Skull continued, and so at this point, I uh, was, they started torturing me relentlessly with thought insertion and thought reflection technology. So this is when, uh, you know, the, the torture continued, Chris, you know, we're not here to help you. No one's here to help you. Chris, you're, you're, this is Voice to Skull. This is torture, and that's what torturers do. We're professional torturers. We torture for a living. So this continues, and now they start intercepting my thoughts and repeating them back to me without me even uh, having a chance to finish them, and then uh, injecting thoughts and what I call thought mirroring, when they kind of, uh, uh, whatever you think of, they shoot back to you, it, then you shoot back something, and, and, and it kind of creates this mirroring effect, like if you're in the bathroom looking at, at mirrors, you know, one in front of you, one in the back, it's just this kind of torture with your thoughts. It, they elicit a thought. As soon as it's elicited, it automatically repeats that thought back to you or a different thought, um, you know, usually words, you know. And so they're just agonizing, um, cutting you off every time you have a thought. And it was new to me, and I, I wasn't, you know, I didn't know how to handle it. And so I said, you know, voice to skull, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill myself. I said, I'm going to uh, make you stop torturing me. So I walked to the Ikea and I went to the fourth floor parking garage, and I found this place where I could walk down the railing. Uh, right, you know, one side I'd fall off to my desk, and the other side I'd fall off into the parking lot. And I told them, you know, I'm going to walk down this railing uh, until you stop torturing me. And it was so scary on the railing. I got up, my legs were just shaking. And uh, I said, torture, I'm going to walk down this part of the railing. You know, it's about three and a half inches wide uh, until uh, a certain distance. Um, until, unless you stop, you know, talking, until you stop torturing me. And I'm not, I'm going to do it completely. If I fall off to the left, I'm going to get up and try it again. So uh, that was difficult because you, you can't aim, you can't, you can't kind of lean toward the parking garage. You lean, you stay straight up. So I went down about 100 feet. I was so scared and I made it and I jumped off. I said, okay, that's it. And torture was nervous. The torturers were nervous. I jump on and said, okay, Chris. Are you sure you want to do this? You know, I'm like, yes, I'm sure. I'm going to do this until you stop talking to me. You know, Chris, you know how it is with Boys to Skull. We, we're torturers. That's what we do. We torture. And, you know, so I got up. Okay, you're tortured. And so watch me do this. And I did that about 100 feet. I came back the next day. I added another 100 feet to it. I came back the next night, added another 100 feet to it. And this is, you know, right there on the intersection of 101 and university. And there are parking lot lights on me, and I was nervous that, you know, security guards could see me, but I stayed up there and did these walks all the way to 1,000 feet over the course of a week, but they wouldn't stop talking to me, 
talk, you know, they were just talking about other things. Chris, we know he's going to do it tonight, guys. He's, he's going to walk those 1,000 feet. So this last night when I did the 1,000 feet, I got up there, and I started walking, and I was really nervous about the 1,000 feet. Um, and so, uh, but they, all of a sudden, I felt them put my hands out beside me. And then I felt myself walking kind of forward while looking straight ahead before I was looking down at the beam, you know, at the, at the railing, um, the cement railing. And so they were kind of helping me. And so I made the walk. And I thought, okay, you know, they're, they're kind of helping me with this. But they continued with these tortures, thought insertion, thought reflection, thought snagging. You know, I, there's so many different names you can kind of call out for them. One, one you know, remote neural monitoring torture is speaking slowly, like the sloth in, Ut in uh, Zootopia. Where do you think we're going now? Are we headed over to the left? Or the right? Are we going to let you die or live? You know, that kind of thing. And so they were doing this, and I said, you know, you better stop. And so I went, I drove to the beach, and um, in Half Moon Bay, I found a beach, a secluded area at night where the waves were crashing really hard. I climbed up on the rocks, and I took a bunch of sleeping pills, and I said, you know, uh, you guys are going to stop. You're going to stop. And I would inch my way to the front of the rocks, right in front of the, you know, right where the waves were breaking and kind of pooling up in a cove that was just certain death for me. It was, you know, Half Moon Bay is where the biggest waves in, in the United States are. So I was, you know, right on the edge of the rock. I couldn't, you know, I, I was, they were still torturing me. And, you know, I finally said, okay, you know, I don't want to do this. I don't want to die tonight. As soon as that happened, a giant wave hit me, by the way. And I, I could barely stay on the rock, but I did. I went back home, and they were saying, you know, guys, what are we doing torturing Chris? You know, they always do that. Why are we torturing? Or do we really want to torture Chris, you know? And um, so you, you think, well, you know, maybe they'll stop, but they didn't. And so now, this is, you know, the, the day after this experience, um, I actually went back to the, the next night to a different part and tried to wade into the water where the rays were crashing, but they were crashing too hard. It would have been instant death. So I, I stopped myself, and I came back. They wouldn't stop talking. You know, these are my death threats, you know, death threats. Stop talking to me. Stop torturing me. I'm going to kill myself. So um, I, uh, so the day after that, uh, the second, you know, experience with the waves, I went, um, uh, they started, Voice of Skull started chanting. I was back at my place, and they started this chant. Uh, it was the name of this woman I worked with at, at CompuCom and this ex-boss of mine, and they played up these characters in that these Palo Alto torture sessions with the celebrities. They played them off as, as this, my, this guy I used to work with was in love with her and didn't want her to be, you know, my support system and didn't like her masturbating me and all this stuff, and he was jealous. And I didn't believe any of it, but for this torture, they said, you know, Robert and Lisa are screwing Chris but not screwing, using the F word. Robert and Lisa are screwing Chris. Robert and Lisa are screwing Chris. Robert and Lisa are screwing Chris. And they wouldn't stop. They kept repeating that over and over and over and over. And I said, you better stop or I'm going to freaking kill myself. And so they kept going. It was for, it, it was really, you know, a couple hours or something, three hours. And I know about the chatterbox and I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, if this is automated, I'm dead. I'm dead. So, 
you know, it's terrible. They hit you with these combinations of that, with the P waves, and they're always manipulating you with these waves in some way. They're always hitting you. You know, there's so many different ways they have that do these different, you know, it's just techniques, torture techniques that they have. And so I went to the gas station and I bought gas. I said, I'm going to burn myself. I lived in Vietnam. I, you know, knew about, read a lot about the Vietnam War. And um, I said, I'm going to pour gas on myself. And, uh, and uh, you guys are going to have to make a decision, voice to skull, you know, standing up for myself, um, you know, uh, and uh, really putting myself in the position of having to kind of do this, you know. So I went to the gas station. They wouldn't stop with a chance. I bought the gas, bought a gallon of gas in a red container. I drove to a secluded, you know, part of the beach, um, uh, you know, south of uh, Half Moon Bay, and walked out to a, a, an area – uh, that was about 20 meters from the ocean, and um, I had shorts on, had the gas can, and had kind of a, a jacket with a hood on, and uh, I had a beach towel, big, big, you know, beach towel, big towel. And I uh, was going to lay it down on the sand, but I decided to just wrap it around my waist and tuck it in. But you know how a big beach towel is, it's big, you tuck it in, uh, in a lot of, you know, kind of uh, in your back and then also around your front. You know, it tucks in you know, kind of deeply, you know. So I, uh, I had the beach towel on. I had the, the gas. I, I kind of kneeled down on my knees, and I poured the gas on the beach towel on my waist. So covered the front and back all on the sides, just went around, you know, three times with the gas, you know, blah, 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 blah. It was about three-quarters of a gallon of gasoline I poured out. And I said, this is it, torture. You know, this is it. And I meant it, you know. I, I said, you know, I, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to freaking kill myself, you know, if you don't stop this. You know, you have to stop. And they just continue with the chant, continue with the chant. Chris isn't going to, you know, we, you know, Chris, you can kill yourself. You can do whatever you want. We're voice the skull, you know. And, uh, and then they continue with the chant again. Chris, you know, Robert and Lisa, screwing Chris. Robert and Lisa are screwing so I, um, I took my lighter out, and I held it right next to my knee, uh, right next to this gas towel. And then all of a sudden, I went into this trance, and I just thought, what? You know, I couldn't really think. You know, and this is the beginning of what is this Manchurian candidate technology, where they can take over your thoughts and take over your body. And I was in the worst position I could possibly be in when they, you know, revealed this technology. I knew they could move my hands. You know, they had done puppet shows where one, my left hand's talking to my right hand, and I would kind of jump in and take over the right hand, and, you know, because it was, you know, I, I thought they were letting me go. You know, this is a big reveal, so I would kind of have fun with it at some point. But I didn't put it together. I didn't think they were going to hurt me because they helped me walk down the uh, parking garage railing, you know. So I, I had the, um, you know, the lighter in my hand, and all of a sudden I went into this kind of trance where I just started staring at the lighter. I just was, just, I just was staring at it. And then all of a sudden my right thumb starts pushing down on the lighter, and I couldn't do anything to stop it. I couldn't believe what was happening. I, I just thought, oh, my gosh, I'm... I'm lighting myself on fire. What is going on? And then I, you know, felt my right thumb click the lighter. Uh, it 
was a roller lighter and rolled a lighter, which is really strange. It just emitted all sorts of sparks and, uh, and lit the first time. And it engulfed me in flames. Engulfed me on flames. And it just was this searing pain. I felt it rise from my feet all the way, you know, up to my waist. And I tore, you know, I had to reach into the furnace, you know, uh, to pull out the towel, which had been tucked in so deeply. It burned, you know, my hand doing that. It finally got the towel off, and, but I was still on fire. And I ran toward the water but slipped and fell. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, if I slip again, I'm dead. You know, the fire, the pain of having fire, you know, sear your skin, you know, and, and was just so intense. And so I made it to the water, and I put myself out. I uh, voiced the skull, stop talking at that point. They were just watching me die. And so I put myself out, and I was just like, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you, you, you assholes did that to me. And, um, you know, I, I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. I'm looking at my legs, and I'm like skin peeling back. If you've ever seen burns, you know, the burns are white and and. Uh, you know, your layers of skin just kind of peel back. And, um, and uh, I, you know, my hands were, were just on fire and, and were hurting. And, and, um, and I was trying to find my car. I was trying to get back to my car, but it was so dark out, I couldn't find the path back, you know, from the beach to the, to the parking lot. So I kind of got stuck in these bushes, and I just thought, should I just sit here and die or what? And, but I somehow made it, you know, back onto the path and to my car, I drove myself to Half Moon Bay, at the, to and stopped at this you know convenience store and just said called the police you know called the ambulance called the ambulance I've been on fire I, you know I just you know I've just been on fire, and uh, so the ambulance came and and I went into shock in the ambulance and so they uh, a helicopter came, uh, or they they got me to the first hospital they got me to Stanford Hospital, but then they called a helicopter Flight for Life to take me from Stanford to Santa Clara because I guess I don't know. I wasn't doing well. And um, so they uh, airlifted to Santa Clara, put me in the burn unit, um, and I was burned on 40% of my body. I was there uh, for a month in the hospital. I had, you know, four skin graft surgeries. So, you know, my legs were completely covered with, with burns and, and uh, my butt, you know, and, you know, that whole experience was just – it was actually a, a great experience. I mean, it, it – they took care of me, you know, the, the medication. It's pain. It's pain, you know, having your, your, your uh, burns uh, cleaned, you know, and right after the surgeries, removing the staples and that kind of stuff was painful. But they, you know, just the, the, the nurses and doctors were so nice. I couldn't say, you know, I, I just couldn't say anything uh, bad about that, that experience, you know, considering what I went through. But the voice of Skull stopped talking to me. Stopped talking to me. I went to Arizona rehab at my parents' house, uh, which is where, where I am now, and uh, my parents were with me. At the time, they had two houses, Colorado and Arizona. So they were with me for the first couple months of my recovery, um, burn recovery, which is long. Burn recoveries are very long. Your skin tightens up. You can't move, you know, all kinds of things. Um, but after two months, my parents needed to go back to Colorado. And the second they left the house, literally, the second the garage door closed, Voice to Skull said, hey, Chris, we're back. And I was tortured again. The torture started up, nonstop torture. You know, I'm like, 
talking to my killers, basically, and they were saying, you know, Chris, these are things, these are experiments we just have to put you through. We can't explain why. They're just experiments we have to put you through. And, you know, um, you know, in some of these conversations, they were breaking down and crying. Um, and so now they're torturing me for another two months at my parents' house, and then they jumped into one night another thought interruption torture that was just terrible. And at this point, you know, I'm kind of thinking, I, you know, the only way to deal with this is to, is to threaten suicide or to go through with it. So I jumped in my car, I drove to Ensenada, Mexico, and I found a hotel by the beach, and I w waded out into the water one night, and I said, okay, that's it, Voice of Skull. And they stopped me. They said, Chris, go back to your hotel. We're not going to torture you anymore. And so I went back to my hotel. But then they did it a week later. So this time, I went into the water, I swam out, and I floated on my back, and I just sat there. And I said, you're going to stop talking. You're going to stop talking. And they, Chris, you know, we're just, we just have, you know, you don't understand, you know, you, you understand, Chris, we're torturers. And, you know, we, this is stuff that, that, you know, we, there's nothing, you know, we can do about it. This is, this is what we do. We're, we're voice to soul torturers, Chris. And, and, you know, they just say that stuff to, to not make any sense, you know, what, They'll ask you an uh, unanswerable question all the time. What is torture, Chris? What is torture, Chris? Um, and so they were doing that, and I'm just sitting in the water, but I'm, saying, but I'm thinking to myself, you know, fine. I'll just die. I'll just die. So I sat out there, and finally, you know, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm treading water and floating on my back, and I'm really out of shape. I was out of shape, you know, since Vietnam. You know, I used to work out all the time, but I stopped working out in Vietnam, and and didn't work out at, uh, at uh, the car company, um, Lucid, uh, where I was working. And then uh, after this burn, was in the hospital motionless, you know, bedridden for a month, and then bedridden for two months at my parents' house. And then another, you know, I would spend, basically for the next three or four months, I was bedridden in Arizona. I would just get up to, to eat or drink. So I was really out of shape. So my shoulder was aching. I was, was tense. It was, um, uh, you know, tightening up. And I couldn't breathe, and I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm dying. And I said, I'm going to get back to shore. And I tried to swim, but the current had taken me out, you know, much further than I had thought. You know, I was, I, I, you know, I, th I think I said a quarter mile in one of these interviews, but it was, you know, uh, at least, <coughs> you know, a couple thousand uh, feet, you know, uh, or maybe, you know, two three football fields, four football fields, something like that from the, uh, you know, from the, from the beach. But I was swimming and I couldn't get back. The, the current was pulling me out. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, this is how I'm going to die. You know, and I just started, I didn't think about anybody. I, I just thought, you know, I got screwed in life. I really got screwed. And the water was getting in my mouth and I couldn't keep myself above water. And I thought, this is the end of it. So, again, voice to skull, stop talking. As soon as I was, they knew I was kind of fighting for my life, they just kind of sat and watched. It's almost like they're experiencing it through your body. They want to feel what it's like to experience dying through your eyes, you know, through your ears, through your, you know, through your body. And so um, somehow I just said, I'm just going to try it one more time. And I kept swimming and swimming I, until my arms stopped. I just have to swim until my arms just stop, you know. So I kept doing it and doing it, and somehow I got to a sandbar where I could put my feet down and get air. And, and so I made it back to the hotel. And when I, I, when I walked back to the beach, 
you know, from the sandbar, the voice of scholars were crying, or John, the guy who kind of inhabits me, all this, explain that, was crying and saying, Chris, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to do that again to you. And I'm just like, you're a freaking asshole. You know, why are you doing this to me? You know, why are you doing, why are you doing this to us? You know, Chris, we're just doing it. We're just doing it. We can't tell you why we're doing it. We're just doing it. And so those are the kinds of answers you get from voice to skull. So, you know, uh, I spent six months or something in Mexico, and they continued torturing me. And then, you know, uh, they started building up in, in the hotel room I was staying in this transformation to the Manchurian candidate. And that is when, and I'm, thanks for sticking with me and letting me talk, um, that is when they started telling me, Chris, we're going to con- change you. The purpose of this experiment is we're going to convert you. We're going to transition you into uh, a Manchurian candidate. And I'm freaking out. I'm just like, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean? Are you going to make me kill somebody? Are you going to, you know, make me jump off the balcony? Um, you know, is it going to go dark? Do I fall asleep? You know, what is it like to be turned into a Manchurian candidate? And they built that up for a couple weeks. You know, we're getting ready for the, for the transition, and, and you know, um, here's what it means. Here, you know, here's uh, just um, John was saying he's going to write a book about it, and Chris, you know, whatever happens, we're just going to make sure you're remembered. And, uh, and uh, you know, but, but Chris, we, that, that's what the, you know, that's what science is. You know, that's what science is. We have to cross these lines. We have to cross these lines, or, or, you know, or science stops. And science never stops, Chris. Science never stops. You know, stuff like that. And I'm just thinking, gosh, why me? You know, why does this have to happen? And so I'm in the hotel room, and we're talking about, you know, usually I, if, if I watch movies or something, they'll, they'll kind of tone down and let me watch the movie. But that's a rotten way to live. And, you know, I, so they'd let me um, watch movies, and, and then when I stop, start talking to me again, you know, whatever. Um, but I'm worried about the Manchurian candidate transformation. And um, so one day I'm, I'm asking John, and what they did, right around the um, time they started torturing me in uh, Tucson at, when I was recovering from my burn, they made it clear to me that there was someone inside of me, someone who could kind of wink my eyes. It, it's almost like having another consciousness you know, inside of you. And it's the, it's the, it's the fourth speech person but you're not quite aware that he's living in you, inhabiting you 24 hours. You just think he's speaking into a microphone, you know, with, with a headset on, you know, reading his EEG, you know, you know his evoke potentials, and that's allowing him to, to control my mouth. You know, you're just thinking in those terms. But now this person is kind of living inside of you. And, you know, you're, you're, uh, he can, he's trying, you know, sometimes he tries to kind of, speak over you, and, but you're always aware of it. Um, and so you're getting used to this. You never get used to it, but you're aware of the fact this person's inside of you, and he's talking back to you. And, and, um, and so it, you're just sharing your mind with somebody. And, you know, I was, I was talking about these things. Uh, there's a, an article about twins, uh, uh, conjoined twins, that was uh, just recently published. And I don't know if anyone's read that, but they talk about these two girls sharing a conscious. And that's what this is. They, they called it a, a thalamic um, bridge. So the thalamus is connected. Their thalamus is, uh, are connected. And they call it a thalamic bridge. And so that's 
they, they said this is astounding to scientists because they've never been able to study, you know, the two consciousnesses at once, which is just another indication of, you know, look what we're going through and look at what they are comparing this to. It's never been reported in science. It doesn't fit the description of multiple personalities. It doesn't descript, uh, fit the description of these mental illnesses, uh, other mental illnesses, um, you know, unless we if TIs describe it the way delusional disorder is described. You know, these, we're going from voice to skull to forced speech to biorobotization to dream manipulation to um, uh, sexual stimulation uh, and then these of RNM, you know, thought insertion tortures and all of these things. It's always happening in the same pattern to us, to the TIs. Uh, the similarities are exactly the same. And so we need to kind of communicate this together. We need to communicate what, you know, what voice to skull TIs and other TIs suffering, you know, from RNM technologies, you know, are really going through. So it all kind of culminates in this, this, this Manchurian candidate takeover. So I was in the hotel room, and, uh, and I said, you know, John, I named my torture, my inhabitor, John, you know. Uh, John, what, what is it going to be like? And he said, Chris, I'll just tell you. Here's what it's going to be like. I could, uh, and all of a sudden I felt this, this, this energy, you know, um, kind of, uh, you know, kind of that trance I felt when I was lit on fire. And my thoughts just kind of, you know, all I could think about was what John was saying. I couldn't think of anything else. And John was describing, you know, he, he was taking me through it. He said, well, Chris, it would happen like this. Then I felt the, the trance. And he said, I could move your arm like this, and he moved my arm. I could move your other arm like this and push you off the bed. I could, I could uh, move your legs down so they touch the floor. Then I could uh, stand straight up like this. I could walk uh, over to the desk like this. I could pull out the chair, I could sit down like this, and then stand back up like this, and sit back down and stand back up. I could walk over to the bathroom like this, I could walk to the front door and open the door like this, and you can't do a single, and you can't do a single thing about it, can you, Chris? I'm like, oh my God, and I was paralyzed. It's like just, it's like being hit with a taser. I've never been hit with a taser, but I, I can imagine, you know, it, the feeling is, is having a stronger electrical charge running your body. It's just a stronger, stronger electrical charge. You know, you can't tell somebody to not think, you know, or, you know, to just try to change your thoughts or something to stop voice to skull. No, no, no. You know, just try to think about something else and your body won't be moved. No, 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 no. It's not like that. This, these technologies, they can, you know, hit you with a certain intensity that might allow you to clench your fist while they're still moving your arm around. But when they turn up the intensity, you can't clench a fist. You can't do anything. I couldn't even try to fall to the ground and, and, uh, to make this stop. Nothing would have stopped it. You know, when they were hitting me with those waves in the car, I was clenching my fist trying to stop it. You know, uh, when they were moving me back and forth, I could still reach over and light the cigarette. I still had some control over my body, even though these things were happening. So I just assumed... These, this biorobotization gave you, you know, a certain, you know, percentage control over your body, but it wasn't like that. This took me over completely, walking me around in circles, you know, standing up, sitting down, and then, then he finally, you know, sat me back down in bed and said, that's, you know, that's what we can do, Chris. And, 
and, and what are you going to do about it? They're always torturing you. They're always in this, you know, we're going to kill you. You know, you have, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. So sometimes they lighten up, but then they always come back to the, to the torture. So, so that's what it was like, completely taken over, full Manchurian candidate. There's nothing you can do to stop it. But what I'm saying what in, uh, about this experience is that I, it, you know 100% what's going on. It's not imperceptible. You know, so where I think they are now, the technology, now I came back to Tucson here, uh, and I'm about to move overseas. But for the last five months, they've been torturing me uh, with, you know, thought insertion and, and, you know, a lot of stuff that is uh, right on the borderline of perceptible and imperceptible. And then I'll tell you one more story, if I, I forgot, and then I'll, I'll be done. Um, about a few, uh, three weeks after the Manchurian candidate takeover, I was sitting in bed, and they were uh, voices calling me um, uh, and imitating a good friend of mine I went to high school with. And uh, his name is David Scott. And this is the first time they had imitated David Scott. They had imitated one of David Scott's best friends, another high school friend of ours, um, who's... Also well, Chris, I just want to, Chris, I just want to give you a heads up. We have like 30 more minutes left for the... Uh for the podcast. Oh, okay. You know, um, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap this up in five minutes uh, with this story about Dave. Okay. Okay. So they've imitated David's voice, talking to me on voice to skull. I couldn't believe it. I, but, you know, it, they do such a good job. I just thought, David, what are you doing with voice to skull? Are you involved in voice to skull? He said, Chris, a lot of us are involved in voice to skull. You know, it went on for about an hour. Didn't think much of it. And then, a week later, I find out David Scott died. He died of an aneurysm while taking a walk in Colorado on a cold day and died of hyperthermia. So I flew back to Denver. I couldn't believe what was going on. And um, on the way to the memorial, uh, the, I, I got a haircut, and the hairdresser said to me, I was describing, I, I was explaining to her, I was on my way to a memorial, kind of late. Um, she said, what happened? I said, well, my friend passed away. She said, how, how did he, you know, how, or, you know what, what's the story or how did he pass? And I said, well, he died of an aneurysm um, while taking a walk and then, uh, uh, you know, died of actually of hyperthermia. And so she said, <laughs> she said, well, Chris, I would sure rather die of, um, of being left out in the cold than being set on fire. I should, I should rather die of the cold than being set on fire. And I thought that was a strange thing for her to say. So, you know, I just thought, oh, what's going on? And, I, and, and so I went to the memorial, and I've explained this to Ella before. I've explained this to a few people. I won't go into it because it's so hard to describe. But uh, the, this person, David, was a basketball player. He was a varsity basketball player, one of the best on the team. That was his sport. So we went to the memorial, and uh, the eulogy sounded really strange. Like it's just, it, was, it wasn't at a funeral, funeral home. I'm um, sorry, at a, at a, at a church. And, and, and there wasn't a, a graveside service. It was at a clubhouse near this, in this neighborhood where he lived. So a lot of people there. And so his friend, our mutual friend Chamberlain, uh, who played basketball with him his whole life, got up to speak at the, at the podium. And he said, uh, it was a short eulogy. You know, I, I love you, David. I miss you. But I want to tell everyone about something that's really special to David. David loved soccer. He was an incredible soccer player. And he especially loved playing soccer for the Denver Kickers and the International Friendship Cup team. And, and, and so I want everyone to know, you know, uh, that that's all David, uh, you know, used to talk to me about when we were kids. 
you know, and in high school, was how much he loved playing soccer. And, and I was just dumbfounded because David was a basketball player. He never played soccer. Those two teams were competitive soccer teams, and I played on one of them. And David was nowhere to be found. He never he played soccer as like a 10-year-old. And so here's his best friend giving a eulogy where he's talking about David playing soccer. He was out of this world. So I've tried to explain that to people. And, you know, we talk about lawsuits and things like that. I explained this to Dibble. And, uh, you know, I just thought, you know, he said, they just kind of took down the information. And I thought, maybe they're all under gag orders. You know, maybe there's some way of breaking a gag order. It seems like, you know, maybe my friends are involved. But over the last few months, I've kind of thought about it more. And I thought, well, maybe they were taken over. You know, maybe Voice the Skull just kind of took them over to torture me, you know, to build up all of this anxiety in me. So that's the story. That's, that's where I'll, I'll end it. And that's where we are now. Wow, that's, wow, what a story. Um, it's quite remarkable. Um, well, you sound, you seem very resilient, and you still seem to have your wits. So, um, you know, kudos for that. Yeah, it's, what they're doing now is torture. It is hitting your brain. They're, they're letting me speak, Ella. If you watch my videos with Ramola, my podcast, I can't find words. You know, they hit me at different right. levels at different times but they're kind of letting me tell this story. And they were kind of almost breaking up when I was talking about the, you know, the, the burning and, and that stuff. Um, but they hit me nonstop now. And they call it um, uh, death do us part torture. You're in death do us part torture. And so when I hang up, hang up the phone, you know, like, other, like, like the rest of us you know, uh, who are going through, through this sort of experience, I, I'm being tortured. It's nonstop Chris, what are you going to do? It's, you know, we're, it's, it's torture till you die. And why do you have to die, Chris? Because everyone in Voice the Skull, they didn't say that, but, you know, everyone in your position, you know, everyone dies. And, you know, all of this stuff, and I'm not saying that to scare anyone. It's just how they're torturing me. And so um, that's where we are. And it's day-to-day with me. I mean, they keep me up all night long, you know, I'm surprised they let me do this interview with you guys, but I think they know that I'm just trying to get my story out and, you know, explain these things the best I can so that other people can understand them, you know, and, and so. Yeah. Well, they definitely didn't want you, they definitely didn't want you giving it on the radio show. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, that's okay. This, even this podcast gets a lot of views. So, um, you know, and this definitely will get out to a lot of TIs too. So, but um, you know, um, do would you have time? Let's we have a little bit of time. Let's take some questions. Star eight, and I won't be able to get to everybody, and I apologize for that. So I'm going to go to. Um, is that okay? Do you mind taking a few questions? Of course. I'm I'm, I'm sorry if the story went on so long. It's just a, it's 13 years. We have a very. You know, you have a very in-depth story, so that's completely understandable. Okay, so here we go. Florida, I'm going to come to you if you're still there. <clears throat> Hi, Florida. <clears throat> yeah, she's had her hand raised for a while. So star eight, if you have a question for Chris. Okay, I'm going to come down to California. Hi, California. 
Hi, he actually ended up answering my original question. So just thank you for a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating story and thank you for sharing. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for saying that. Um, I hope it makes sense. I, you know, it's such an overt, over the top, you know, V2K experience, you know, that I hope people can kind of retell. You know, well, you know, the, the experience in East Palo Alto with the hand shaking, you know, and arm shaking, and leg and torso shaking, one by one, you know, that's what these, you know, tortures are doing. It's so, if if it helps anyone describe this to somebody else, well, look what it did to this guy, you know, and then bring it into the Cuba story, you know, this, you know, if we can all kind of try to talk about this in the same way, in the same, mentioning the same similarities the graduated revealing of the technology, you know, that's what I hope, you know, it, you know, we can do together, you know. Um. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, you know, I'm sorry that you, your story is so um, horrific. You know, they come in all different variations and, you know, different, uh, different torture tactics. And, you know, I'm just so sorry that you had such an in-depth and, um, full type of program well when you think about the suicides um this is what they're going through this is how it happens you know they torture you to suicide all the time it wasn't just those four times you know they they torture you yeah. until you're on the razor's edge and they either bring you back or they keep pushing you and it adds up mm -hmm. you know it adds up it's torture yeah. It is torture. They want to pull out, you know, stretch that as long, as far as they, they can, you know, and, and, and make that experience as excruciating over the longest period of time that they can. And, what I, and I think what ends up happening is people do what I'm, was, I'm describing. I'm going to, you know, jump off the yeah. And you don't know. It could be an accident. A wave could have hit them. They could have gone out too far in the water or, you know, pushed too hard on the trigger, on the gun. You know, trying to tell the tortures, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And, you know, and all of a sudden, bam, you know, uh, they went too far. They slipped, you know, the gun went yeah. off. Okay, well, I have a question here from Connecticut. Let me go ahead and get this person unmuted. Hi, Connecticut. Hi, this is Connie. Thanks for sharing your story. It, it's very fascinating, and it's really scary when you talked about how many times he tried to commit suicide because it kept on making me think of Corey Dubin, who killed himself a year ago. Um, it, it's terrible. And, you know, another TI said what made her really sick is that they were with Corey during his last minutes of life, you know, into death, which is disgusting. But their big kudos are when they can get somebody to kill themselves or do a violent act and hurt others or get incarcerated or go into a mental hospital. So that's not what we want to do. And, and I did hear that when we do die, they want our pineal gland and our irises because they want to know what this targeting did to us. Um, but have you ever tried to detox? Uh, I, I mentioned this a lot in the calls because I'm heavily targeted and um, because I worked for the federal government. And, um, but when you detox inside and out, because what they're putting on our skin is making us into like a transmitter and receiver. So like Kyle 
mentioned when he did um, the Lookout for Charlie uh, 30-day detox uh, regimen, his V2K dropped like less than 50% of the time. So definitely what they're spraying in the skies and putting in the food and the water and the smart meters. And, um, you know, definitely this stuff is getting on our skin, like biosensors. Um, usually they're behind the ear, in the ear, below the ear, on the neck, back of the neck, usually when you can't, places you can't see. And it's making us into um, transmitters and receivers. So have you tried to detox? No, I mean, I've, I've eaten pretty healthy. Um, I haven't done any real, you know, uh, detoxes. But, um, you know, I, it's hard for me to, to do that because... You know, my my torture is so overt. It is just all day long conversations back and forth, you know, and um, it's I've it, it's followed me everywhere to Cambodia. I rode motorcycles in the rural part of Cambodia, and they were talking to me the whole time, you know, talking about my lane changes and whether or not Hun Sen's daughter, you know, would want to ride with me. You know, Chris, you know, we... We're representing the U.S. here. We want to connect you. We want to help you with some connections out here. And I'm like, Hun Sen, daughter, what? <laughs> wants to ride on my motorcycle? So, you know, if it's in the rural area, if it's on an airplane, you know, it's just difficult for me to believe after reading everything Robert Duncan's written about this that, you know, electromagnetic waves, um, you know, can be stopped through detoxing. Um, if it's nanotechnology, then I can understand that. But I have a feeling that I'm kind of going through what what Robert Duncan has described, just, you know, through this means of voice to skull. You know, Dr. Horton sent me a, um, a chip reader, uh, and it's come up negative, come up negative. So I don't have any chips. Um, but, you know, I, I don't mind. I'll, I'll give it a shot, anything at this point. So... Yeah, I, I would urge you to watch the Look Out for Charlie video and just to let you know, there's some quicker and easier ways, but uh, I know a lot of people use Epsom salt because a lot of the organisms they're using are worm-like um, and mites and worms and things like that, like the nano hookworm. And um, these uh, really, once they get these things on you, they have so much capability of doing things to you. And um, I would urge you to try it because this stuff causes cancer and high blood pressure and all sorts of illnesses, and they're spraying it in the skies, 100% of the population is infect, infected, um, and um, it's really important for everybody to detox, but some of us, they're hitting us extra hard with this stuff, um, and I am chipped from head to toe, so, and I have two foreign objects in my eye, one of my eyes, um, so, but it's really important to detox because you, you do have nano in you because they're spraying it in the skies. And so anyways, um, things like garlic and sea salt and Epsom salt and baking soda and the antibacterial, the orange antibacterial palm olive. But if you take um, like uh, the anti-itch cream from the Dollar Tree store or hot sauce, rub it on your skin. If all of a sudden your skin starts feeling like sandy, like gritty, um, those are the organisms embedded in, in uh, silicon resin um, or poly resin. Um, but m most TIs I saw at the conference have biosensors on, on their neck and near their ears and 
temple and face and yeah. And if you take a black light and shine it on your body, see if it lights up. Well, you know, I've um, I've, I've done a, a lot of that. I've certainly done the full chip search. Um, you know, I think people, we, we just have to, you know, everyone has to understand that there are different methods of delivering these these messages. And, you know, I think the government is kind of setting everyone up for, you know, uh, so that they'll believe it requires a chip or it requires, you know, um, some device that you put on your head. You know, that's the big secret is that this is remote. It can be done remotely from, you know, a, thousands of miles away practically. I don't know how close these base stations need to be, but let's say, you know, uh, 50 miles or so away or 100 miles away at least. Um, so that's dangerous. That means that, you know, we, you know, the TIs who can't prove chips, you know, have to kind of sit and hang in there, um, not knowing, you know, whether or not uh, Elon Musk's company or what Facebook does brings more attention to this. It might create ethics, um, you know, a conversation about ethics and laws, but it might not cover the, you know, the distance uh, and the fact that, that there's no receiver inside of us, no nanobodies, you know, um, that, uh, that can kind of relay the signal. So that's my worry, is that that you know, that remote portion of it that doesn't require chips will never be revealed by the government or, you know, won't be included in legislation. But I, I think it would. I think it would be. But, but yeah. Yeah, and there's, there's a couple of TIs I know who are getting ready to hire lawyers to file their cases, and they have quite a bit of evidence, and one's on the East Coast and one's on the West Coast. And um, the similarities are... Of what's going on, you know, universities are involved, hospitals, doctors, NASA, the Air Force. Um, it, yeah, it, it's like there's so many entities involved and how they're doing things and what they're doing. And, and I do know details. And, and so I would just urge every TI, even though our targeting is not the same, and even though they can use satellite technology um, and your smartphone and your anything chips that's near you, whether it's your car or your, the appliances in your home, I would urge every TI to watch Look Out for Charlie because regardless of what you're targeting, it is, targeting you're experiencing, and even if you think you don't have biosensors and biofilm, it'll make you healthier because that radiation they're pointing at you to do what they do it is damaging to your body, and um, you're, you know, it's going to take a toll. So... But I wish you all the best, and I really appreciated hearing your story. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. That means everything to me. It really does. Yeah. And don't hurt yourself, you know, because of these people. That's what they want you to do. Oh, yeah. I'm aware of it. <laughs> yeah. Expose them. Expose them. Get a case against them. That's, that's, that's the route that I'm going. I'm going to follow these two other ladies that I, that I know. Well, thanks, Tani. Thank you. Thanks for the advice. Okay. So Thanks, Ella. Hi. Yes. Hi. Your name's Chris, right? Yes. Thank you very much for sharing your story. It was very interesting. Um, I have a question. You said that Dr. Um, Horton sent you a chip checker or something like that. What did you call it? Yeah. So can a you, bug detector. Can you, a, what, can you share with us what that is and how we can get one? That sounds yes. wonderful. Yeah. 
Yep. There's a um, German company that makes it, uh-huh. and uh, they accept PayPal. It's expensive, oh. though. It's over $300. Okay. Um, and uh, let me see if I can... That could be cheap in the long run, actually. I'm sorry, what do they call it again? Not a, what is it? It's a bug detector. Let me read off bug the... Bug detector, uh, okay. Oh, cool. And it checks for... It checks for frequencies in your bo- in your body or the um, implants. I well, that's what that's about. Doctor Horton um, des- describes you know how these waves work. Uh huh. She, you know, she she uh, kind of talks about these chips uh, having right. to relay a signal. And, right. And that uh, you know any sort of chip works on a electromagnetic frequency. Right that these detectors can pick up. Right. Now, you know, oh, that cool. doesn't explain, you know, the Dr. Uh, the uh, Robert Duncan kind of side of the, of the technology, the way he describes it. Yeah. But if you are chipped, uh, at least her demonstrations, you know, if you've watched her videos, show the uh, the meter going off, you know, when right. it's near her head and other places and her, right. her abdomen and her knee. So right. it's called an, a, um, a, a KECO, uh, A-C-E-C-O, a C E C O, okay. Yeah, A is an apple. C E C O. Uh huh. Um, S C six zero zero two M K two. One megahertz to six gigahertz RF tracer. One M M six gigahertz. Okay. Um, and the and the um second part of after the E C. I'm sorry, I can't read my own writing. But is S is in Sam C six zero zero two? Um, F is, is in F is F, in C is I'm in Chris. Sorry. F is in Frank and C is in Chris. Yes. I'm sorry. That mean that. Okay. F. Okay. Six thousand and two. MK. Right. MK two. And then one megahertz and six gigahertz. Is that right? Yeah. So you know, that's those are the frequency ranges that. Uh, right. Obviously. Great. <laughs> All right. I need to know you. I mean, I'm not real techno-savvy, so I appreciate your explaining it very much. Okay. And the company, and we find it, we, it, is it only sold in Germany, or do we just do we just Google that information? Um, it's a German company that uh-huh. you can just buy directly from them. I think if you Google it, it'll come up. Um, if you have any problems, email me. Okay. Uh, I don't have the information right in front of me, the, the name of the Fine. company. But uh, my email is Chris E. Burton, C-H-R-I-S-E is in Edward, B-U-R-T-O-N at Yahoo. Okay, and you're also on Facebook and so am I, so I can find you there too. Yep. Okay? Good. At Yahoo. Very good. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, too. What was your name? I'm Linda Costanzo. Oh, hi, Linda. Okay. Hi. And um, I'm on Facebook. I'll send you a friend request. Then we okay, can talk perfect. on there, too. Okay. Nice to meet you, Chris. Meet you too, Linda. Okay. Thank you. So on that note, guys, we're going to go ahead and end the call. So I want to thank everybody for coming to the podcast. And everybody, please get out there and talk about this in a, in a you know, in a toned down way because we really want people to listen to these, you know, listen to um, our topics. And, uh, you know, the only way we're going to, I think, be this is just, you know, talking, getting people on board with this and um, getting people to look into this themselves. So um, I just want everyone to, you know, 
pass out flyers, you know, do what you can and to, or have discussions, and, you know, um, with people. And, um, you know, there's ways you can do it. If you, if you make references, if you have like the app, Ted Gunderson's affidavit, Mark Rubio is on board with this. I, don't, I think he's got a document somewhere floating around. But anyway, so, you know, um, there's an after call. It's 125472. Again, it's 125472. And um, everyone take care. And, and Thursday we have a really interesting guest. Her name is Val, and she's an activist up in Canada. And <clears throat> I contacted her about six months ago, and she finally got back to me, and she's ready to come on and share her story. She's just a neat, neat lady. So everyone take care. Linda, I'll talk to you soon, and okay. everyone be safe. Hope you're well. Okay. Thanks, Thanks everybody. Bye, everybody.